When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. brand new life to a brand new day all the way from the wastelands of california my name is michael and i am a mere figment of your imagination i look forward to once again serve you those sounds of salvation first time listeners turn on tune in and drop out this is a very different kind of show place where we don't feel so alone let us chase away the light no matter what you at home choose to believe i do admire you for your curiosity live and direct and in the flesh, we've got a full house here tonight for all of you. Joining me tonight is Mr. Randy Walsh. Randy is a commercial pilot and a certified flight instructor in the aviation industry. Randy chose for his first book the subject of the Apollo Moon Missions hoax. Also joining in on the conversation is Mr. Scott Henderson, a veteran of the program. He draws assignment here tonight to co-host the festivities. And of course, on the second half of the program, Ronnie Dawson, he is back and live in the building. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for allowing me into your hearts and into your minds. Here we are again on a night like this. I hope you're doing well out there, wherever you are. Thank you to those in America and those outside of America for supporting the program. So we meet again here under Pale Moonlight. To get down to brass tacks. How are you guys doing tonight? I didn't mean to interrupt the, the conversation here. Oh, we, we were <laughs> just talking about a, another uh, researcher who likes to have a lot of fun with the videos he puts up. Ah, yeah. okay. So. Yeah, pretty amusing character. There's a lot of people out there nowadays who are that do a, just a tremendous job with the moon and all sorts of different subjects. They're pretty, pretty talented individuals out there on YouTube. Yes, there are. Yes. Yeah, everybody has something to contribute for sure. No doubt. And of course, hello and welcome to the Michael Deacon program, Randy. Thank you, Michael. And it's uh, certainly uh, I'm happy to be here and uh, happy to actually connect with you. No doubt. I'm glad you're here. And I'm also glad that we are joined by Mr. Scott Henderson here. Yes. How are you this evening, Michael? I'm fantastic. This, this oh, my yes. second appearance. Yeah, you're, uh, you're a veteran. Yes. Yeah, I'm glad you're here. I wanted to talk to you as well about your finding so many in interesting things you brought up that I completely missed myself. And I thought I had uh, known a great deal about this, but obviously reading your work and of course Randy's work, it's just left me blown away, to be honest with you. Well, Saturn V rockets tend to blow up as well, so. Oh, no doubt. Yep. Seems to be a common theme with NASA. Oh, yeah. So, Randy, what's going on out there in Canada? Well, it's interesting. Um, I'm getting a lot of um, 
feedback actually there seems to be more of an awareness now i don't know obviously it, it has to do with the 50th anniversary of apollo 11 but um it, it is interesting i'm getting a lot of uh, people coming up to me saying you know we you know read your book seen your uh, work it's interesting they're actually paying more attention to what's going on and i find that people are starting to really take this seriously you know um for the last uh couple of decades, it, it was um, a subject that was usually mocked, but I'm seeing evidence now, or indications rather, that the mainstream media is even sort of starting to to take it a little bit more seriously. So it seems that we're we're finally being heard. Yeah, no doubt. And of course, HBO just launched a very popular show. I, I It's from the Earth to the Moon. From the Earth to the Moon, yes. And very interesting that um, I had the uh, pleasure of being involved in an interview with HBO recently that was aired on the 20th, the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. And I was in the documentary with uh, Bart Sabrill and Marcus Allen, So, and it was kind of fun. And uh, they did a six-minute segment with the three of us in their newscast, and we're hoping that they'll do a full-length documentary on it. But it seems to have been received very well, so I'm quite happy about that. I believe I saw the trailer. Yeah, yeah, and it was uh, it was quite a fascinating experience. They had uh, flown a camera crew up here um, from New York, and they, they interviewed me for two hours. They interviewed um, Bart Bill and Marcus Allen for two hours each. So they have about six hours of footage, and we're hoping that they will. Uh, do, I think they will, but uh, I think they're probably holding back to see the response that we're going to get. But so far, the response has been overwhelmingly good. So uh, we'll see what happens with that. But uh, just just the bottom line is, it just seems that people are, are finally taking this a lot more seriously. It almost seems like history is repeating itself yet again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes, well, keep that in mind, folks. We'll round the base yet again. And this sort of repeating of history, it'll come back up here. And of course, you are the author of the very popular book, The Apollo Moon Missions Hoax, or Hiding a Hoax, in plain sight, rather. And I've been reading it, and I thank you for sending me a copy, and I like the autograph as well. Oh, you're welcome. You're you're very welcome. And uh, I was certainly uh, certainly um, happy to send you a, a copy, and I'm glad that you've had a chance to go through it. And uh, it's, it has been received very well. Um, inevitably, you're going to get um, negative comments, but that's 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 going to go with a subject such as this. It is a controversial subject, and it's very difficult. Well, I understand that people have a difficult time believing in this. I mean, I was there too. I remember watching the Apollo moon landing live. Uh, I was actually in, in uh, I was a, you know, a small child in school, and I remember watching this live. And so I grew up believing in, in the Apollo missions. I was inspired by it, and, and it had, a, had a, an enormous positive effect on my life at that time. And to finally realize that, you know, wow, we've been um, conned, uh, it's not easy to accept, and I can understand people's anger when, when you tell them this. So, uh, you know, inevitably you're going to get that, but overall it's been received quite well. Yes, the Apollo moon missions hiding a hoax in plain sight part one. That's what yes. I missed there. I knew there was a part one somewhere. Yes, part one, and part two will be out early next year. Very nice. And how long did it take you to write the first part? Yeah, um, a bit of a story with that. This actually started about um, 20 years ago when I just happened to be – I just came home from work one evening, 
And as usual, you know, back then it was click on the TV. It wasn't, you know, remote controls were still, you know, fairly new. But anyway, clicked on the TV and there was a documentary on and it, it involved uh, one of the Apollo missions. And they were talking about um, navigating back to the um, navigating back to Earth from the moon. And they were talking about the slingshot effect. And I knew right mm. away that they were talking about Apollo 13. And I remember it was the commander, uh, Jim Lovell, and he was talking about you know uh, how he was saying to one of his colleagues now when he fires the engine keep the remember remember to keep the earth within a grid pattern on the lunar module window now that scene was actually duplicated in the movie apollo 13 ron howard's movie apollo 13 but it wasn't exactly what happened in reality the the official version is is that he was talking about keeping the earth within a grid pattern through the optics um, they just sort of sensationalized a little bit more in Apollo 13. But either way, it, it was, a, to me, I remember thinking at the time, it was a precarious way to be navigating 240,000 miles back to Earth. And I know at that time, I had, had already had a pilot's license, so I knew quite a bit about navigation techniques. And I was just thinking, well, that doesn't seem right to me. So I didn't really think much of it at the time, but it never really left me. And it was about maybe, oh, six, six, eight years ago that I really started, I took yeah. another look at this so and I got involved right. in, um, in, in the reading and the, and the research and uh, it kind of went from there. That's sort of how it started. Yeah, I find that very interesting because you're someone, you didn't even get into any of this at a young age. It came much later after you have matured and you got your license, but you definitely remember sitting down in a classroom back in 1969 watching this and of course you give it uh, no second thought and much later on in life see this and it, it really has you triggered yeah and and i remember the events very clearly back in 1969 and we were of course um we were in the same time zone as the uh, uh, apollo missions in terms of their uh, launch and, you know, it was in the morning. And I remember that we were all brought down, all the classrooms were brought down to the gymnasium. And it was really funny now when you look back at it, because back then we didn't have, you know, plasma TV sets. We had a little black and white grainy TV in a corner of this huge gymnasium. And I remember looking at that and thinking, I didn't fully understand it at the time, but I, I, I had a sense of the significance of the importance of it. To grow up and uh, believing in that and then become, you know, getting into my 30s and 40s and realize, oh, well, something's not right here. So, yeah, it was quite a it was quite a change. I had to make quite a change. It was almost a paradigm shift and change for me just to, to see what was really going on. Understood. Understood. That makes plenty of sense. And I, I don't mean to go off track here, but I am mm -hmm. curious for the morning of 9-11. Yeah, that was a turning point for a lot of individuals out there. Yeah, that's when they started really questioning the motive and narrative of, of a lot of things out there. And yeah. you didn't have any of those sort of moments yourself, did you? Yeah, well, the, the interesting thing about 9-11, um, the morning of 9-11, um, I was caught up in it just like everybody else. Right. Um, you know, you're, you're, you, when you're. Today, day, day and age, even even uh, 15, 15, 20 years ago, um, television is a very powerful propaganda tool, and you cannot help but be influenced by it, by it in some way. And it had a profound effect on me that day too. And for 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 several months, I mean, I sort of bought into the official version. You know, I was you know caught up in the emotion of it, um, and I understood people's reactions too, and I mean, it was understandable. 
Um, it was a horrible day. A lot of people, a lot of innocent people lost their lives. And that's something that we need to think about whether we're for or against the official versions. Right. A lot of innocent people pay the price. And um, that really stuck with me. But yeah, 9-11 was sort of uh, not so much a turning point for me. It was more of a reinforcement. Like I just at that time was beginning to see that, well, maybe we shouldn't believe everything we hear and everything we see. Maybe we should start questioning things. Maybe they're right. But we give them the benefit of the doubt. But we should be looking into this ourselves. We should not be taking anybody at face value. And that includes governments around the world. You should be looking into this yourself and doing your own research. Definitely. And you just mentioned that TV was a very powerful tool. And that's yep. how basically you became interested in becoming a pilot. Yeah, I, I mean, and I give the uh, I give NASA a little bit of credit for that sure. as well as my um, as well as my own family, um, you know, because I was actually introduced to airplanes at a very young age um, in the '60s, and um, I was always inspired to become a pilot. But but the the NASA missions really sort of solidified that. Now I knew I wasn't going to get into space; <laughs> yeah. the average person is not. But I thought, well, the next best thing is flying airplanes, and that's uh, kind yeah. of really where it started. And and sure, uh, it, for me, for the first several decades of my life was a very inspiring experience. No doubt. As, as no a result doubt. of that. I can understand, too. Just think about how many people became cops solely because of the TV show mm -hmm. Chips. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I mean, of course, it's a, it's a Hollywood. Uh, sure. Uh, yeah, for, you know, for sure, it's a... Uh, the way it's depicted. But nonetheless, there are certain things that uh, do inspire. I've heard people say they're inspired by Star Trek and by Star Wars. Um, you know, I mean, uh, also, let's keep in mind that there's that and there's the reality of it. But sure, these shows can inspire people if they have a positive message. And, and, and some people are inspired by that and they do well. No doubt. And before we get back on track here, Scott, are, are you still alive there? Yes, I am. I, I definitely wanted to pitch the, the same question to you in regards to 9-11. Did you think anything of it at the time? I'm not quite sure if I've ever asked you that here. Um, well, I absolutely did. I was I was watching the news when it happened at the at the time. I saw the second I saw the second plane hit in that. And when the buildings came down, it was unbelievable to watch. And when I realized that Building 7 had come down in uh, five and a half seconds, I realized that it was a planned demolition. It was quite clear to me. Buildings don't fall like that, not structures that were designed like that. Top seven floors of Building 7 were the alternate uh, location for the military in case the, the White House was ever attacked. Okay, That was their command center. Uh, that building was designed to withstand a near nuclear blast and continue to operate. It was completely self-sufficient with its own hydro, water, air, everything. It could be completely sealed off from the environment so it could operate like that. And when I saw that happen, I knew exactly what happened. And then when you realize that all of the offices that were working in there were up and operating the very next day without one day's uh one one day off, all their files. They had all their files. They had all everything else, right? I mean, the IRS going to get to their files, right? Yeah, they want tax money. Yeah, it's, they lost a day at work. How long would it take if they lost all their files? Right. It's it's just interesting to think that here we are, so far removed yet again. The media is still not giving too much attention to nine eleven as it has in the past. That should be slightly alarming for some individuals out there who are paying attention. 
Well, if I can jump in on this, go ahead. Uh, yeah. The alarming, the alarming thing about nine eleven is whether you're, um, whether you uh, are for the official version or you doubt the official version. What's alarming for me is become folklore, and it's it's almost like it's just not taken seriously anymore. And I find that the most disturbing aspect of all. And and you're right. Uh, uh, people are just you know the media's not paying a lot of attention to it. Uh, people are not paying a lot of attention to it. It just seems to become ancient history, and that for me is what's disturbing because it is one of the most defining events um, in the 21st century, whether um, you agree with the official version or not. And you know, I, I really think that people need to stop and and, and take stock of themselves when it comes to 9/11. Uh, that's that's really my opinion, but I think that needs to happen. Understood. And before we jump right back into your book here, I do have one more far out claim here that I did want to run by both of you. And it, it sort of still relates to everything we're talking about here, but I definitely want both of your opinions on this one. About a year or two ago, I had a guest here mention the 1986, the space challenger that exploded in just 73 seconds, killing uh, all seven on crew. Do you guys recall that? Yeah, very uh, vividly. Yeah, yeah, my guest said that a laser beam shot it down. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that. You theory. heard that theory, uh, okay? Okay. Yeah, I've heard that theory. And look, at um, first of all, I haven't researched the space shuttle program. I am going to be doing that, but I haven't researched it right now. And I, I just think it's careful. I think we just need to be careful um, in in some of these theories. I mean, there are some far fetched theories. It's pretty out there. far out there. Know. It may be true. It may not be true. I don't know. But in order to, if you're going to make an accusation like that, you need to have at least something, even circumstantial evidence, to back it up. And because you are pointing fingers at us at an entity, that's and, true. And, and and you know, so I just think we should be careful with this. Yeah, we don't want a lawsuit on our hands either. We don't want a lawsuit, but there were also innocent people that that lost their lives and, that's and true. the families of the the space shuttle. And I know some of the other theories that are put out there that uh, they're not really, they weren't really killed, and that they, they you know, they they're still alive today. I've heard all that too. Look, at I, I don't know. Um, I need to research it for myself, and then I'll make a determination. But until then, I need to keep my mind open. Definitely, I'm with you on that one fully. Yeah, yeah and he didn't get into the specifics. I've just heard a few theories. Uh, like like that one that I just told you, and of course, specifically that the Russians and Cubans definitely playing a role on the event. Uh, yeah. They've had some sort of a treaty since the the Cold War, mm -hmm. uh, Russia and Cuba, and they've had several uh, facilities near Havana. So that's um, not very far away from Key West. No, it's not very far away, but they also know that um, if Cuba was to pull a stunt like that, they know full well that the American American technology and, and military uh, would be on them in, in a second. I mean, they know this. So if they were going to do something like this, they would have to be very, very careful. They would wild. have to be very planned out. So again, keep our minds open on this. Definitely, definitely. Just w wild stuff out there. I've, I've heard all sorts of things. And of course, during the late 70s, early 80s, all kinds of interesting things were happening. Of course, you've had the SDI going on by Ronald Reagan, the Strategic Defense Initiative. So during the 80s, lasers were all in. Yes, it was the uh, it was the wave of the future. So we can understand. Yeah, we, we can understand where people are going with this. Sure, sure. And I mean, you know, and you have lasers being uh, pointed at pilots coming in uh, for landing. So, Ooh. I mean, it's become a it's become a big problem. So I'm not ruling it out. I'm, I'm just saying that we need to have evidence. We need to see some 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 strong indications that that may be the case. Yes. And of course, before we wrap it up here, Scott, how, how do you feel about that one as well? Is that is that too crazy? 
No, it's not too crazy, but if you also realize the fact that uh, that's a man-made machine and it was being reused and recycled over and over again, the chances of something breaking down when you have millions of parts that all have to work flawlessly every time, right? And you realize that you have to take that into account that it's most likely human error, okay? Uh, you know, the weather was rather uh, cold as well. Uh, the official version is that the the uh, it was too cold and the seals failed on it, and that's what set it off. And when you when you realize the size and power of that machine, that men make mistakes when they're building things and you're reusing the same piece of equipment over and over again, it seems very logical that that type of thing could happen. Right. You know, no doubt. Like like uh other other theories any anything could have taken it down you know if if we actually had the technology what they're claiming is that they had a laser defense weapon right against the thing and did we in the 80s or did we not we know by somewhere in the 90s that they were playing with it in the gulf war but you know, it was all just theory before that. Right. Very interesting stuff to speculate, of course, as always. And going back... Absolutely. Oh, go ahead. Did you... No, absolutely. Okay. It's it's always interesting to speculate yeah. and to hear what other people's thoughts and views are on a particular subject. But they're also uh, calling it out when there's when people lost their lives. Right. You know, that's, that's very that's important. That's the same thing. And it's, a, it's an insult to their families. When you do something like that. Yeah, I'm with you. And of course, going back to Randy's <clears throat> book here, early on, very early on in the book, you talk about the Apollo missions and you go into all sorts of great, de uh, great deal of detail and all these things. You really break it down in a, a very well, a well place, I should just say. It's just written so good and it's very easy to understand. And again, very early on in the book, you were saying this isn't a book that's going to be too much in the conspiratorial realm, nothing having to do with Freemasonry or anything like that. I, I just wanted to make that clear for those that pick up this book. Yeah. Um, when I came up with the um, idea to write the book, uh, there was two things I wanted to stay away from. The first one was um, the... The photos and film, for the simple reason that's being written about, and it's being written about well, and Scott himself has done some really good work on this. So I stayed away from that aspect of it for the simple reason that it's just it's been it has been done and it's been done very well. The other issue with the Freemasonry aspect of it is is that I'm well aware of the Freemasonry symboli symbology sure. that's yeah. involved in this. But again, that's another area that I decided to stay away from because it's one thing to point out the symbols, but still pointing out symbols doesn't prove that it happened or it didn't happen. The symbols are there, but that doesn't prove anything. That just proves that they're there and that there may be a belief behind the reasons for the emissions being, uh, uh, having happened in the first place. I wanted to look at the technology and I, I wanted to actually scrutinize the Saturn V rocket the all components of the missions, in other words, the technology as a whole to see if it was feasible for us to get there or not. And that's the approach that I wanted to take with this. And that's why I decided to stay away from the conspiratorial, conspiratorial aspect. Now, look, at just the mere subject, I'm going to be labeled a conspiracy theorist. Sure. Anyway. Yeah. You know, I don't mind. People can label me anything they want. But read the book and it's about the technology and then decide for themselves. Yes, and Scott, by the way, what reeled you in, by the way? Well, uh, 
every now and again, you'd start to hear little bits and pieces about man landing on the moon. And you'd see little video clips and things like that. And uh, just through a little surfing on the internet, I got a little curious and started to have a look. Understood, and, yeah. Uh, it, it didn't take very long be between going, you know, uh, I'm listening to somebody and I don't know what videos they were exactly. And I'm going, well, that guy's, you know, he's got to be crazy, right? And I thought I better have a look myself. I needed to find out for myself. And all of my research uh, that I've been doing was basically for myself. And at a certain point in time, I decided I would uh, share a little with uh, Marcus Allen, actually, is, is who I was sharing my information with. And uh, he said, you got to get out there. He said, uh, he encouraged me to, to go public with the information I had because it was completely uh, separate and different from anything else that was out there. Yes. And, and by the way, Marcus Allen, he's the owner of Nexus magazine, if I remember correctly. He's, no, he's a publisher. A publisher. For, okay. For UK. Uh, Duncan Rhodes is the owner. The owner. Okay. And uh, yes. Randy also has written up in Nexus magazine as well. Understood. And Randy, if I recall correctly, the F1 engines and its testing is what really caught your attention. Yeah, uh, that's where I started. And, and just to give the, um, the listeners a little bit of uh, background on the F1 engines, they were um, rated as the most powerful rocket engines ever built um, uh, before the Apollo, well, during the Apollo missions and after. Now, they were, they were actually, the program was canceled after the 1973 Skylab mission uh, when the Saturn V was used to launch Skylab into orbit. Now, without the F1 engines, um, there would no, there would not have been an Apollo moon landing. And the reason why that is, you needed the F1 engines' power to launch the Apollo payload into orbit. Now, when I say into orbit, I mean up to an altitude of about 40 miles. I mean you have to project the rocket up to an altitude that it can then fire its second stage engines to reach an Ottoman orbit in order for um, a trajectory to the moon. And what I have noticed with the F1 engines is is that I, I looked at the testing aspect of it and I found it very questionable. And there's two aspects to testing. There is the static testing and then there's the in-flight testing. And I found that there was virtually no in-flight testing of these engines at all. And I broke it down even further. And then I discovered more that there was problems. There was constant problems with the F1 engines. Because when you're building an engine that big, you're getting into a lot of energy, a lot of resources. And you cannot sustain that. And there's only so – there's a limit as to, in terms of how far and how big they can build, build these engines. And that's – Really what started this uh, research for me was the all-powerful F1 engines, which turned out not to be all that powerful after all. Yeah, see, that's another thing that I sort of contemplated just a little bit about the rockets. And did we even have enough power behind those rockets to get us where we need to go? I always thought about that. But of course, I'm not someone who understands anything about rockets, to be honest with you, of course. And that's also what makes you stand out as well, that you do have a background in aviation. Specifically, it was the circumnavig circumnavigation to the moon also that caught your attention and triggered you. Yeah. I, I mean, the thing is, too, and I'm not saying that aviation makes me an expert. And, of course and, and not. Some yes. people have said this to me. What I'm saying is, is that it really helped me. Um, in analyzing the technology. And a lot of people can actually do this for themselves. Don't be intimidated by the term rocket scientist. It's nothing to be afraid of. 
Um, there's you can a lot of people if they put their minds to it can understand the concept of rocket technology and what's behind it and what's involved. And so I went from there, and yes, the navigation aspect was something that was just uh, it was incredible when you actually look into how NASA says that they navigated to the moon and back. Um, you just you sit there and you just shake your head and you just say absolutely no way that that um, Apollo guidance computer couldn't even navigate in low Earth orbit, let alone to the moon and back. There was just no way it could be done. That was a fake computer. Yes, that's one thing I always as well questioned in terms of how we got there. The computers that we had during the time. They weren't powerful whatsoever, not back in 1969. No, they weren't. And, and, and actually, that has been talked about many times. So I actually looked at it from a different angle. I asked myself, okay, what was this computer capable of doing according to NASA? Well, I looked at what it was capable of doing. And if you read the literature carefully, NASA's actually telling you that this did not happen. Um, the computer required crew interface for a lot of its um, functions. Um, it was not what I would classify an autonomous computer. And you would really need an autonomous computer to fly. Now, they had this in unmanned spacecraft. So why didn't have this in the Apollo missions is beyond me. But they apparently did not. And it was not a computer that was capable of navigating itself. They would have to use a form of celestial navigation. So in other words, that meant taking star sightings through a telescope and then um, triangulating those star sightings and inputting that data into the computer. And then the computer would give a uh, position fix. So this computer didn't navigate. It gave a position fix. Navigation is brought on by what they are claiming is that, you know, direction and speed of the spacecraft. This computer did not maintain uh, course and speed, which is why they had to do periodic checks along the way, which is just an absolute insane way for anybody to, to even think that they can navigate 240,000 miles to the moon and back. It's absolutely impossible. And I might add, using celestial navigation, which worked really well um, in uh, for ships sailing the seas for hundreds of years, is even then it was used as a position fix. It wasn't an accurate way of navigating. It worked well for them because they had maps to go by and they had, you know, they're familiar with the territory. But we're talking about an area of space that was new to uh, mankind back in 1969. I mean, it was a hostile environment. And one, you could be off by one degree of course, and you could be thousands of miles. And given, given the limited propellant that they had on board, um, they would have run out of fuel trying to correct to get themselves back on course. They would have been marooned in orbit for an eternity. It just did not happen. And for those who are just tuning in now, I am speaking to Randy Walsh and Mr. Scott Henderson, and we are going into some detail here in his book, The Apollo Moon Missions, Hiding a Hoax. In Plain Sight Part 1, and of course Part 2, when is Part 2 set to release, by the way, if you, if you know? Yes, I've actually, I'm writing Part 2 as, uh, as we speak. Actually, I'm writing it now, and um, I'm uh, about a third way through the book. I plan to have it um, released hopefully by early next year. And I also want to add that I'm going to be um, writing a chapter involving the work of Scott Henderson here and of Marcus Allen. So there will be a chapter in the book on Scott's work, and I'm very happy to actually announce that I'm working with him on that. Oh, yeah, of course. Scott, yeah. uh, he's a veteran here, and he has presented his work and his findings here, and we're definitely going to do a bit of that here in a, yes, in a, in a few good. minutes. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about some of his findings as well as we yeah. continue along here. But Look forward to it. Oh, yes. Definitely. And there, there's even some newer things going on with the moon right now since 
we are just past the anniversary. It seems like every website is talking about the moon. And of course, why haven't we gone back? That's the big question that is in everyone's mind yet again, as history seems to repeat itself. Yeah, and, and before I get to that, I just want to conclude um, one thing with the F-1 engines. Go ahead. There, yeah. there was a serious problem with the F-1 engines during testing, and it was called combustion chamber instability. And they weren't really able to resolve that issue. And in fact, NASA admitted to a constant percentage rate of failures during the static testing of the F-1 engines. And when NASA said that they fixed the problem, they actually say in the next line that they don't really know what the problem was. And my question is, well, if you didn't know what the problem was, how were you able to fix it in the first place? And it's my, um, it's my assertion here that they actually either used the F-1 engines or used the substitute to launch the Apollo missions. Something launched that day in 1969, but it was most likely whether it was an empty rocket because the F-1 engines did not have the power. And I want to make sure that people understand that, that is the F-1 engines did not have the power to launch an Apollo payload into low Earth orbit. And if that's the case, there was no Apollo moon landings because without the F-1 engines, you could not have landed hardware on the moon. Yes. And of course, going back to why we haven't gone back to the moon, I'm yeah. very interested in both of your opinions. Randy, go ahead first. That is definitely uh, a valid question. And every time that question is asked, I hear the same thing every time. Um, oh, NASA doesn't have the funding. Um, that's just another in a long line of excuses as to what NASA gives for not being able to go back to the moon. If you listen to some of the astronauts, uh, Don Pettit, for one, is actually admitted that um, – and he's he's on record as saying that you can just look this up anywhere. He's quoted everywhere as saying that we he would go to the moon in a nanosecond, but we destroyed that technology. And that is exactly what has happened. A lot of the technology – and the schematics for the Saturn V rocket for the uh, the thousands of rays of telemetry tapes have been destroyed. And they've been destroyed for one reason, to hide the evidence that there was nothing there in the first place. There was no – it would show if there was any schematics. There's just no way. It was impossible to get to the moon with that technology, and it's impossible to get there now. And the reason why they haven't gone back isn't because of lack of funding. They still get $20 billion a year. NASA could actually divert its funds – to uh, their manned space program if they actually wanted to. What I find very ironic here and very interesting is, is that NASA can come up with $100 billion on the uh, International Space Station, but they can't spend money on their own means of getting there. They have to rely on Russia to do it for them. And I might add that Russia is using 50-year-old technology. So you have one country 50 years later in the world that's capable of launch to low Earth orbit, and that's with Russia using a rocket using 50-year-old technology. There's something seriously wrong with the manned space program today. And Scott, go ahead if you have anything to tag there. Well, if you realize that uh, NASA actually hasn't launched anything since 2011, I would think they're out of business. Yeah. They don't have anything, they, they don't have anything in the works. I look through their uh, report server all the time. Most of the documents that you find in there, they're working with Boeing, um, researching for um, jet engines for aircraft for supersonic flight. That's one of their main focuses that they're working on. They're doing the testing for Boeing and everything else on that. And uh, the only other technology that they've really come up with is uh, um, actually quite, quite an enhancement with uh, aluminum products and uh, they're working with uh, BRP that make Evinrude engines, and you'll find that technology in the new Evinrude outboard engines. 
That's, that's one of the few things that they've actually come up with that, that actually work. The, the, the engines are quite reliable, much lighter and more powerful and burn even cleaner than a modern car does. So that, that's one of the few things they've come up with. As far as going to space or having a space program, they've basically been out of business for nine years. My goodness. Yes, it's very unusual that we have not gone back and you would have to imagine that it should be such an easy task with current technology, right? Well, you know, think about it. I ask people to think about it, it, it this way. Um, getting a rocket off planet Earth is requires an enormous amount of resources because of the gravity forces involved. So why wouldn't they have had a moon base by now to launch from there? I mean, the, if they had invested the money 50 years ago, to um, expand on and build on the technology that they had back at that time, they would have had launch capability from the moon. It would have been a lot far easier. It, the cost would have more than paid for itself by now. And launching to, to, to planets like Mars and so on and so forth would have been a lot easier in terms of uh, launching payloads. But no, they haven't done that. It's gone backwards. It's gone absolutely backwards. As Marcus Allen said in the HBO video, he said, it's like uh, Wilbur Wright flying his first airplane in 1903, and then we did nothing after that. Uh, it just stopped. And that's exactly what happened 50 years ago. They're telling us the end to the moon and back. We had this wonderful technology, and now we, we've lost it. We've destroyed it. We can't go back. And we have one country, one rocket, and that's it. Ridiculous. They, keep, they, also, they, they also keep feeding us dates. Uh, they keep feeding dates to the public only to delay and push back uh, all these alleged far-out trips to the moon, to Mars, you name it. Oh, I mean, it's incredible. I mean, I actually can write a comedy routine on this. I mean, you take NASA, let's just take the Apollo moon missions, for example. In the 1970s, they said, we're going to go back to the moon in the 1980s. When the 1980s came along, they said, no, 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 actually, we're going to go to, we're going to push this back. We're going to send a crew. We're going to land a man on the moon back in the 1990s. And they said, okay, well, the 1990s came back. And they said, no, by the year 2000. And now they said, why the year 2020? So now we're closer to 20. They said, well, actually, no, we're not going to go to the moon. We're going to go to Mars. And then they said, um, we're going to do that in 10, 10 years. And then they said, no, no, actually, we're not going to do Mars in 10 years. We're going to do it in 15. And then they changed that and said, well, we'll do it in 25. The narrative is the same every decade. And, I mean, you know, you can really write a comedy sketch on this. I mean, it's just, it's just amusing how um, they just I, – I really think they think people are stupid. People are not that stupid. They know. They know that we're not going back, and it's just a narrative that NASA has, as you say, every decade to keep people's interest up. So That's strange. It it's very strange. They say space is the final frontier, but have we actually explored it? Uh, yeah, very interesting. The final frontier. Yeah. And, you know, um, no, no. I mean <laughs> – it's hard to say. We have on-man missions, and some of them have been successful, um, at least as far as I know. I haven't looked into that aspect of it, but I know what they're on, which is very interesting that you that I brought that up because their yeah. on-man missions during the 1960s was plagued with problems. I mean, uh, I've been researching this for the next book. And their on-man missions had problems after problems after problems leading up to the Apollo missions. But you, you, lo and behold, the Apollo missions, which were more complicated in terms of its technology, all worked seemingly perfectly, except for Apollo 13, which people always throw at me and say, well, what about Apollo 13? Apollo 13 was a success. 
okay? Because even though it didn't land on the moon, they miraculously made it back to Earth and it was called a success. So we're looking at a 100% success rate in terms of their trips in, 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 to uh, the moon and back. I'm not talking about the Apollo 1 disaster because people say that one too. Just in terms of their missions in space, they have a 100% success rate versus their on-man program, which was dismal. And anybody can look at this for themselves and see the same thing. It's very interesting. Yes, and of course, I also wanted to bring up another prominent figure. That would be Elon Musk, very innovative, very brilliant individual. And he's also someone who wants to go forward with space tourism. He wants to offer that sort of experience. And of course, we do have the failed project of Mars One. We were talking about Mars a minute ago. There was also a a company called Mars One who wanted to start some sort of a human settlement on Mars. And of course, that never came to fruition. Yeah, and that's all fiction. I mean, all of that is just part of the narrative to keep people's interest. It's just, you know, it's Hollywood selling a movie all over again. Uh, we're, we're, there's going to be no space tourism. There is no space tourism. There won't be space tourism to the moon, let alone Mars. There won't be space tourism low, low Earth orbit, let alone the moon. It's just not going to happen. Elon Musk is a brilliant man in a lot of ways, but he's also being used. He's a propaganda piece, and I think people need to realize that. Watch every time they get close to putting a manned mission into low Earth orbit, and they're, and they're talking in terms of space tourism, something happens. An accident happens. It happens every year. It happened with, uh, with uh, who was the owner of Virgin Airlines when he tried to do the same thing, and then he had an accident, and that was put on hold for years, and we haven't heard anything from him since. So the only if man missions are going to happen, you need the full resources of a government, no matter how Richard Branson. Yeah, Richard Grant. Yeah, Richard Branson. Exactly. How many times have we heard this from him? Well, people got fed up listening to him. So now they put in Elon Musk because he's the fresh face. But now people are starting to get fed up with him. So they'll find somebody else to sell the same narrative. It's we, fiction. We also have a Jeff Bezos who's getting in the mix as well. Yes. And a new face, fresh yep. face, same narrative. Yeah, same. Right. The whole space tourism thing, it's very sexy. It's a very sexy dream to push out there. I want to believe that we can achieve these things. I'm very curious, my friends. Very, very curious if we can actually accomplish that. Yeah, we just can't. We don't have the technology. We can't continue. Like, rocket technology has its limits, right? They know where, they know exactly where they are. Uh, Randy knows exactly where they are. Marcus knows exactly where they are. I know where they are, right? The rest of the world want to believe that we can go much farther with simple rocket technology. There are so many other things that we must overcome first, not just the propulsion, right? We have to be able to build a craft that accounts for everything the Earth does for us right now. It has to give us the environment. It has to protect us from radiation. It has to uh, do everything. And the Earth in itself is actually trapped around the sun. Okay. So as soon as you start leaving the solar system in that, you don't have the power from the sun the same as the Earth does. So you can't even reproduce it in that manner. Yes, there's just so many red flags. 
Very there are two things that you need to do if there's ever going to be a form of man traveling space. And there's two things, and I just break it down and keep it very simple. Number one, propulsion. You need to design a completely um, uh, different form of propulsion. Rocket engines, only they have a limit. They can only go so far. We've seen this with the F-1 engines. They have not been used since 1973. They were supposed to be so efficient and so powerful. Why aren't they being used today? So they're struggling to find a heavy lift capability, and they can't come anywhere near the heavy lift capability that they have the F1 engines. The second point is is that you need speed. The, the distances in space are enormous. We're talking we're talking thousands of light years. There's no way that we have that capability. It'll be it'll be hundreds of years before we have anything like that. The way we're going at our present rate. I mean, it's we've already seen this has been 50 years since we've supposedly been to the moon and back, and we haven't done anything in five decades. Nothing. Now, I want to say something about NASA. Go ahead, yeah. NASA is very very good and proficient when it comes to aeronautics. I'm not knocking NASA in that sense. NASA actually has made a huge contribution to um, the um, aeronautical engineering, aircraft, so on and so forth. I mean, they're, 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 these are brilliant minds when it comes to that. They no have doubt. their limits, and their limit goes no further than low Earth orbit. Yes, you talk about that pretty early on in your book as well as the Van Allen radiation belt. You mentioned that yeah. very, yeah, you, very early on you mentioned that. And that made me recall a very popular video on YouTube from astronauts talking about that. Yeah, um, there was one very interesting exchange with Bart Sabril and Alan Bean before I get into the radiation belts. And that was um, he was uh, asking Alan Bean, I believe it was Apollo 12, if I'm not mistaken, that he was asking him um, – you know, did you have any effects, after effects going through the Van Allen belts? And Allen being responded by saying that, oh, I don't think we went out that far. And then Sabril pointed out to him, well, you've had to go out that far. You have to go through them to get to the moon. And then he came back and Alan Bean came back and said, oh, yeah, you're right. We went out that far. I mean, this is the kind of response that we're getting back from astronauts. Half of them don't even know what the Van Allen belt is, let alone that they went through it. And <clears throat> the Van Allen belts, what I found very interesting about my research into the Van Allen belts is the conflicting information that was coming from NASA in terms of the energy flux in both the, uh, the Van Allen belts. There's two of them. Well, officially, there's two of them. I found out there was more. That's an, another story for later. But the conflicting information, and my my question was to NASA, well, if you're not sure of the energy flux and you don't have the equipment to measure the true energy flux out there, how was it that you were able to design shielding to protect the astronauts? And that was the question that has never been answered. They don't really know the energy flux of the metallic belts. And remember, this is constantly changing every second. You need real-time information before you send any manned missions through these belts, which they didn't have the capability of doing back then, and they still don't have it today. And if you don't know the true energy flux, how can you build shielding to protect the astronauts? And that was the biggest thing for me. My goodness, definitely. And, of course, I do want to mention your book yet again. It's just packed with information written tremendously by you. There are a few things I noticed in your book not mentioned anywhere else, uh, some some bombshells. But I won't won't spoil that for those out there who pick up the book. And that's a hard one because there's a few things in here that I – Definitely want to mention here on the air, but I know you want to save those. 
I'll give them one. I'll give them one example. Okay, um, go ahead. There are many elements in space that uh, can end a mission in seconds, and 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 uh, you know, obviously, solar particle events, coronal mass ejections, galactic cosmic rays. Those are three of the biggest things that can end a mission in a matter of seconds. And to give some people an idea, these these um, ejections, mass plasma from the sun, um, can be many miles in diameter. We're talking tens of thousands of miles. Uh, for example, coronal mass, e coronal mass ejections have the kinetic energy to boil the North Atlantic Ocean. You get caught in that, you're dead. There's no amount of shielding that we have or capable of today will protect any astronaut from, from a solar storm of that nature. So that was but one aspect that I looked into. And it's very interesting to let the listeners know that the Apollo missions were sent up supposedly at the height of solo flare activity. So they were dodging solar flares to and, uh, to and from the moon. There was a massive solar flare event that happened August August 4th, 1972, just about four months before the last Apollo mission of Apollo 17. And this solar flare was so powerful, it startled even NASA. It was recorded as the largest, most powerful solar event of the 20th century at that time. And it took NASA by surprise. And yet they sent up, or they claimed that they sent up the last mission, Apollo 17, four months after that mission, after that solar flare. And it makes you wonder, why why would they even risk sending a manned mission four months later after such a massive flare like that? I mean, and there's a lot of questions that NASA has never answered. Yeah, that's pretty careless to do that, you would imagine. Yes. <laughs> you would imagine. Yeah, uh, uh, you know, dead heroes are not good to us. We need them back alive. Yeah, and, I'm with you on that one. You know, yeah, good exactly. lord. And uh, of course, the the first red flag for everyone, uh, having just the primary red flag that everyone should have picked up on was the simple fact that NASA lost the footage. Yes, and that's a very utter interesting point. Now, I actually go into this in great detail, and I'll give a few things here for the listener, sure. and um, I hope that they will look into this themselves. To, to um, a All of this was supposed to be recorded on uh, reels of telemetry tapes. Now, we're talking about com 1960s computers, so these reels would be about the size of your steering wheel. And to give you an example in your car, steering wheel in your car, so to give you an example, for Apollo 11, there was an estimated 14,000 reels of tape recorded. And each reel, each reel of tape contained three pieces of information. Number one was the uh, biomedical information of the astronauts. Number two was telemetry from the spaceship systems. And number three was the live video feed from the moon. That has been lost, all of them. And then subsequently I found out that not just the Apollo 11, all of the telemetry tapes for all of the missions, an estimated 140,000 reels of telemetry tapes have gone missing. And then I found out that they weren't just missing, they were destroyed. And that is documented in my book, and the reader can read that, and they'll see for themselves exactly how I walk everybody through it, and uh, and the finger points right back at NASA. And it can only be one reason why all this um, telemetry information was destroyed, because it didn't exist. It just didn't exist. So if you have these telemetry tapes uh, looked at by historians and they see that there's nothing on these tapes, then you're saying to yourself, whoa, wait a minute, what's happening here? So better than to have that happen, destroy the evidence because there was no evidence. 
Yes, the original tapes now magically and physically disappeared. Uh, yeah. That's really gold, ladies and gentlemen. I, I can't buy that. And that's a very distra- – and I've seen uh, – I've actually um, gotten into some discussions with proponents of the missions. They try to justify that these tapes were uh, – that they they were taped over, and as Marcus Allen said, but what I love Lucy comedy shows. Why would you tape over the greatest event in the twentieth century? I mean, it makes no sense. And if anybody, you know, we have common sense out there. You do not. One of the most important aspects of any event, major event in history, is keeping very detailed records of that event, and that applies to the Apollo missions. I can't think of anything else that would have been a, a more greater event than that. That's and ridiculous. yet they destroyed all that evidence. That is the key evidence. Historians have actually said themselves that if they find these tastes, it would be a treasure trove of information for them. That means that they're significant. They're gone. They're not they're not they're non-existent. Yep, and and really, that's the most troubling aspect of all. It really makes you wonder. Yeah. And Scott, how do you feel about that as well? Well, the fact that they're never Ridiculous. going to be able to repeat it means that they have to stay lost. Not that they yeah. ever existed, right? Exactly. Because if somebody actually does manage to get to the moon. That telemetry would be compared against what the Apollo missions were, right? And there's no way they're going to be able to create those now because they have no idea what the uh, information would be. They keep changing the information and updating their information all the time on all of the data from the Apollo missions, okay? They change little things or they change great things to make it work, right? It's kind of a debunking thing that they have going on, trying to, when somebody comes up with something, that they come up with a little video or they come up with a PDF file. Looks old, is dated old, but the information has changed. And fortunately, I have most of the uh, PDF documents down before they've changed them. And when I see that uh, they're no longer in the archive in the original spot, it'll come up, show me a 404 error. I just search for that same document again, and I come up with the new updated one, and then I compare them. And anything that they are paying attention to that they're changing in the documents means that there's actually a problem with that area of the piece of equipment or data or anything else that they're trying to cover up. There's something, too, that I would like to add to that Go ahead. The, in terms of the telemetry tapes. Um, often it's asked that if the Apollo missions were faked, then how come the most obvious country in the world, Soviet Union at that time, didn't say anything about that? And I'm going to be talking about that more in my second book. I do mention it briefly in the first one. But there's another aspect to this that people need to ask themselves. The, the Russians right now, the Russians and the Americans are pals when it comes to their space program. I mean, they're working together on the International Space Station, so they're cooperating. They're just like friends, okay, for lack of a better way of putting it. So if the Soviet Union at that time was tracking the Apollo missions, first of all, they knew it was a hoax, and they, and, and they didn't reveal it for their own reasons, and, and, and there's many. But if they were tracking these missions, then they would have their own telemetry tapes, and they know full well that NASA claims they lost theirs, so why don't they hand theirs over? And that's a question that proponents can never answer. They don't have them because they weren't tracking them because there was nothing to track in the first place. It's a great question, by the way. And also in the chat room, for those that are watching this on YouTube and not listening to the podcast rendition of the program, those that are in the chat room are treated to one of the space walks and there's an astronaut kicking one of the moon rocks. I always found that a lot of the footage that we see here of the various moonwalk footage is very odd. They're very like strange. Falling indeed. over I mean, each other. It's it's weird. 
Yeah, I mean, it's very strange. Sorry, uh, were you asking me that or Scott? I, both I didn't of, want to. Well, both of oh. you, actually. Okay, well, let Scott take this one and I'll jump in. Well, if you look at the, the videos or even the photographs and you see the behavior of the astronauts as they're moving around, uh, they don't seem to be afraid of anything. They are not being careful with anything they're doing. They are just literally joking around. And of course, when you look at the photographs the way I have and you realize that it's just two guys playing in the mud with a wet flag, like Apollo 17, all of the videos are like that. They're doing that here. It's a full simulation shot on Earth, okay? If if your very life was depending on those spacesuits, you wouldn't be falling down on things and risking cutting or ripping your suit or tearing it or uh, just just the way they they're horsing around in it. The hoses could be, become disconnected. Anything could happen. They could fall down and break their their uh, shield on their face, right, and crack it open in those kind of environments and. To start with, the spacesuits simply can't handle that kind of a vacuum or the seals or the material, anything. They would simply explode. It's very the, strange. And the, the lander mm -hmm. itself with a 12 millimeter thickness of a skin to hold back the pressure inside the spacecraft is absolutely the most absurd thing I've ever heard in my life. Uh, by the yeah, way, the lunar module had mm -hmm. the equivalent um, uh, thickness of uh, three layers of kitchen foil. That was their protection. By the way, gentlemen, uh, we do have someone in the chat room by the name of Gang of Four who asked a good question. He said, how did the lunar rover dune buggy ever fit in the lunar module? Good question for Scott. Scott, go ahead. You've got some really good ones on that. Well, the rover was um, folded into... Um, Quadrant one, which is the if you're looking at the lander on the right-hand side of the lander, and the wheels folded up and the seats folded flat. The equipment rack on the back was sitting in quadrant three, as well as the uh, battery packs and the other tools that they had for it. They do have a video on showing how it does unload and comes down and opens up to the ground. I think just one video they have on it, and it takes about an hour for them to to bring the thing down and get everything assembled on it. Uh, that's not in the same timeline as as what is being shown in the documents or the journal files for the Apollo missions. That particular rover um, weighs 462 pounds Earth weight and about 65 or 70 pounds on the moon, if it had that. And then the batteries are um, 60 kilos apiece, the two batteries on it. There was damage to the rover in, a, in Apollo 15, and that is noted in the journal that the uh, one bank, the one battery bank was down, so it only had half of the power for it to run around on. The steering was broken, and uh, the seats were somewhat damaged, but they still managed to use it. It is not exactly what happened to it. They actually dropped that machine during the simulation of the landing. The exhaust bell housing broke off. The legs broke right off. They physically dropped it from a gantry. The strap broke. Uh, the Apollo uh, or the uh, hammer and feather dropped for Apollo 15. They're dropping the hammer and feather right beside the strap that has broken the very large gantry strap. 
And when you see the size of the thing, it probably handled at least 10 tons, that particular strap. And you look at the one eighth cable that the Rover, which is the heaviest piece of equipment they had to handle is on one little one eighth piece of cable that was holding it in place. But the, uh, they, they will pretend that uh, they made the mission successfully. They pretended that they could get this thing open and operating and running uh, on the thing. But in actual fact, they're on the same set for all six missions. They're using the same equipment. It's the same lander they're using for the simulations. And it's the same rover that they're using for 15, 16, and 17. But they do have multiple rovers. And I have put videos up showing the various rovers that they're actually in Apollo 17. There's just a bunch of young guys out there riding around with three rovers. What are you going to First thing you do if you have more than one vehicle, you're going to race them. And that's exactly what they were doing with them. They were just horsing around with the different machines. Uh, they were hand-built machines. I have uh, photos showing that the uh, frame rails were completely... Uh, different design on them, that the tires that were hand-built have different tracks. Even the, the Chevron track is a different width and spacing on them between the different uh, rovers that they were using. Yeah, so now I do have that uh, photograph of one of your slides up now in the uh, chat room. That would yeah. be a slide four, where it does show that dune buggy there. Yes, yes, you have from the original... Uh, uh, PowerPoint presentation I gave you. Correct. Yes, yes. And uh, there's a couple of slides later shows the three different tire tracks and the three different frame rails. Oh, yes, I see it now. Yeah. Yeah, I'll throw that one up right now. And I also wanted to throw this one uh, to you, Randy. And as you know, since we are here in July, and that means NASA has been, they've, they've been added, posting up all sorts of different articles. And one of them, has to do with a, an experiment that they left behind that continues to return fresh data to this day, they say. Yeah, that, that reminds me of the retroreflectors they've claimed to have left on the moon, the yes. lunar surface as well. Absolutely. Uh, uh, look, at, these missions could easily be, uh, these experiments rather, could easily have been put there by unmanned missions. They had that capability. The Soviets had that capability 50 years ago. True. And <clears throat> so I really don't... Um, uh, that for me is uh, not proof in any way that the Apollo missions happened, and that's just another uh, fictional narrative to keep the uh, fake legacy going. Yes, that doesn't mean very much to you then in terms of its validity. No, I mean there may be experiments on the moon. I'm not saying that, and I'm not saying that they're not getting data. They, no, they, I they understand you. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. But didn't come from the Apollo moon missions. They, they just they had. I would like to add one thing that Scott mentioned regarding the um, yes. the lunar lander for for your listener there. There's something that um, I want them, everybody listening here to factor this in. If this if these missions were real, even in the vacuum of space, you have to factor in weight and balance. And if you're going to add um, several hundred pounds, or you know that rate would be 60, 70 pounds in the vacuum of space, um, you still have to take into account weight and balance considerations for the lunar model when it's landing on the moon. And you also have to take into account that when you're using a propellant, the center of thrust and the center of gravity is going to change for the weight and balance 
specifications outlined in the module, and that can only be uh, take that can only be calculated on an ongoing basis by an autonomous computer, which the Apollo guidance computer in the lunar module was not capable of doing. So that's another factor that I just thought I'd add to what Scott was saying. Perfect. And speaking of that, uh, Scott, now in the chat room. There is that photo of the three tires there, Apollo 15, 16, and 17. Oh, yes. If the, if the people are listening and, and looking at that photograph, if you look at the um, three separate rovers there, that is a shot taken right in front of the rear right wheel. And each of those frames are hand-built, and they're all different. But that's all. That's Apollo 17, and they only had one rover. So that's that's supposed to be the same rover. So this should all look identical. And there are the three shots of of three photographs of three rovers sitting in there. And then below them are the tire tracks associated with each of the three rovers. One makes a very straight line track. One has a fairly narrow track with a wide chevron. And the other one is a very tightly pack the the chevron tread is is much tighter packed together on the thing and the tire is slightly wider fascinating that's looking at yes and of course randy i did want to ask you about uh, one of the photographs that i'm putting up right now in the chat room this is one that really uh, blew me away and that of course is the photograph of uh, buzz aldrin and, and the watch Yes, actually, um, I didn't actually see that until Scott pointed it out to me, and that was uh, <laughs> first of all, it's interesting that he's wearing a watch outside his spacesuit. Um, that in and of itself was comical, but um, I actually defer to Scott on this one. No he doubt, I, I yeah. just definitely wanted your take on it because it's such a popular photograph, and it's I've never no, I never noticed it. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah. It, it's just another uh, the uh, the comedy. It's just part of the NASA comedy routine. I mean, I've come across um, other examples of that. I mean, it's just, just uh, I mean, speaking to what Scott was mentioning earlier in terms of the astronauts jumping around on the moon, um, they get the slightest scratch in one of their spacesuits, the slightest uh, pinprick in a the space. They're dead. Uh, it's over. It, it's, it's gone in a second. You're, uh, the 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 remedy for that situation, if that had happened, according to NASA narrative is that an astronaut would have come bouncing over and connected his holes to the other astronaut's holes. But by the time he got there, that person would be dead. It just did not happen. For them to be monkeying around like that on the moon is just another, as Marcus Allen said, well, if they went to the moon six times, um, how come they could fool us so easily? Well, they found out that they can fool us very easily with Apollo 11. So it was very easy to fool us five more times. So, yeah, it's just another comedy routine. The watch on, on, on his spacesuit was just, it just made me laugh. <laughs> Scott, go ahead. Well, well, the thing is with the watch, the, the very first thing you'll notice is the time, and it says 11.14 on the watch. Um, all of the missions were on UTC time. Um, uh, Neil Armstrong stepped off a... I even forget what time he stepped off at. Um, but the um, Buzz Aldrin stepped off about 20 minutes after that, and that photograph was taken uh, about an hour after he set foot on the moon. And when you look at the timeline on that, and if you look through the journal, that photograph was taken at uh, 4.15 UTC time. And to be to be at at eleven at eleven fourteen 
means he's sitting in Arizona. Yeah, it's very unusual. That photograph blew me away when I saw it. And the other part of that is, is that glove is not connected to the, like the, to the spacesuit. The glove is physically not connected to the suit. And, uh, that additional information will be, well, um, I think I've already put a video up on it. It's going up on the Allis site, David Percy site on the Allis site. There's going to be a full article just on the spacesuit. Yeah, you sent me a photograph, by the way, of Aldrin's glove. Uh, you yes, show a if gap. You that, if you have that picture of it, with I, the, yes. the space, there's about a three-inch gap between the two ring connections on that very picture with that with that watch. Yeah, and it's up in the chat room for those that are yeah. viewing it. And that's another reason why you should be in here live when the show goes down in the chat room. So you have the pleasure of seeing these photographs. But of course, you can go go in on in YouTube on YouTube rather and uh, see the footage much later. But yeah, th this photograph here blew me away. Yeah, and there's absolutely no way that uh, NASA can alter that photograph because that, of course, is the man on the moon, the, the iconic man on the moon photograph. Right. And it's in magazines and hardback books, and it's been out there for 50 years. There's no way they can alter that photograph. Uh, somehow they're trying to alter the equipment that they had to say that it can actually work, but they can't do that either because they, they claim that they have a indoor glove for the suit and an outdoor glove. And it would be right. interesting to add to that too that there's there's absolutely I think there's maybe two and they're darkened photos of Neil Armstrong, which is very interesting. There's no actual portraits of Neil Armstrong, um, officially speaking, that is um, official portraits of him of him on the moon, except for the the video live feed. Good point. And also another photograph that you presented last time you were here, Scott, was of the flag, and you could see that wet spot. <clears throat> oh, the flag is absolutely soaking wet. That's the wow. Apollo 17 flag. Okay, oh and if you goodness. if you look at it, the the best the best uh, example of that, of course, are, is on the journal site from NASA, and it's still there. I check all the time to make sure they haven't altered it. And it's on uh, March to the Moon, which is also another NASA site. It's on their Flickr site as well. But uh, most of those photographs they've. Uh, reworked them a little bit they've they actually haze them out with a grade them a little bit so they're not as clear yeah, Ma nasa nasa seems to do that they love to photo brush images yeah they just they just cover them over and make them look a little foggy all of them but uh the march the moon has uh, probably the best example and the official journal site from nasa and i have links right to that photograph underneath most of my videos Yes. And, and Randy, by the way, are you going to include some of the strange anomalies in your next book? Yes, I'm going to be actually including that um, in a chapter uh, regarding Scott's work and uh, Marcus's work, Marcus Allen, that is work as well. So that'll be I will be uh, one of the uh, of all I, I'm getting a lot of very good feedback for the book. And one of the questions I was asked, uh, a couple of questions I was asked is why I didn't discuss the anomalies in the photos mm. and the filament. And as I said at the beginning of the show, the, the reason is that it's been done and it's been done very well. But I will, because of the popularity of it, I will include a chapter in the next book on that. Very nice, very nice. Yeah, it's a pretty good photograph to show people. And it, it solidifies a lot of uh, what we speculate is going on here, that this was a work, was a work, yeah, my friends. It's a simulation. It's a simulation. It uh, clearly shows 
it it clearly shows the condition of the equipment. It clearly shows that it was being shot outside, okay, which accounts to the the lighting anomalies, everything else, because uh, if they're shooting at night and they're lighting it up, and you have the, the like Apollo eleven and twelve have uh, very obvious light drop off in the photographs. Um, and I don't like those other types of things have been found by other people. So I just, I see them, but I, I ignore them. I just like to present my own findings. I hear you. You know, yeah, Bill, Bill Casing had a lot out there as well. Very early on, maybe the first whistleblower. Who's that? The first one, a Bill Casing. Bill, Bill Casing was the first one. Yeah. Well, he was, he, he was actually, uh, you know, working for NASA at Rocketdyne, right? And he was the first one to come out and say, hey, these rocket engines didn't pass any of the tests. And when they didn't pass the tests, they lowered the standards to make them pass the tests, right? right. And then Ralph Rene picked up on that and uh, has his, and well, he's passed away now, but he has his, his book and his other videos that he did on not only the rocket engines, but the vacuum of space as well, and as well radiation. Right. And of course, that brings me to uh, back to you, Randy. That reminds me, in your book, you do mention the Apollo 11 liftoff and how you talked to an individual who worked for NASA. Yeah, um, I came across this actually on the uh, the Aulis.com website, and I was uh, when I was investigating my work into the F1 engines. I actually do write about Bill Casing as well. Nice. I yeah. talked a little bit about Bill Casing's work. Bill Casing was the first to actually um, come out and publicly say that the F1 engines were not what they appeared to be, and he resigned in 1963 in disgust actually at what he saw. And he's much criticized to this day, but, you know, he, his basic uh, thesis about the F1 engines has held up for the last four decades and has just been validated by a couple of scientists that I've written about in the work in my book that have written about the F1 engines. Um, in, in terms of um, the, inter the, the interesting aspect about um, uh, Scott mentioned something about uh, falsifying or lowering the standards. There is a quote here in my book that I would like to read, if you don't mind. Not at all. Yeah, this yeah. actually came from one of NASA's reports, and I was so stunned by this admission by NASA that I included it in the book. And it, the quote is this. The original failure criterion for the SPS propellant tanks was perforation of the service module honeycomb skin panels. Because the failure criterion was too stringent to meet the desired probability of mission success, engineers considered an alternative. If the original criterion had remained, the test shown in figure four would have been an SPS tank failure, unquote. What that really means, translation, if the equipment failed the test, lowered the standards. In other words, NASA moves the goalposts. Yeah, that's pretty wild right there. And, and that's from NASA's own, own published report. Yes, and you, you really break it down and you get very technical in your book. And that's one thing I really do appreciate. Just that simple fact that you definitely get into a really good detail. Yeah, and, you know, a lot of the detail, too, um, did come from NASA's own reports, and, and that's something that um, people, if they could take the time to read, 
um, it's well worth it because there's a lot of little nuggets in these reports that just, it's almost as if NASA's planting hints. They're planting hints. They're saying, hey, you know what? We didn't go. Here's the proof. And this one quote I just read was proof positive that they did not go. Their, their, their equipment was failing the test. It was failing the standards. So they had to lower the standards to give the impression that it was passing the test in order to convince the public that they had the technology to go. And that was very revealing. No doubt. And of course, I am going to throw up one more photo here. And this one is for you, Scott. And it's another photo that you presented here on the program. And this time it's of the uh, buildup in the window, the the moisture. Oh, that's the that's the uh, Apollo 12 um, photograph. And the other one has the... Uh... The rain guard on the outside. Yes. Yes. Those are those are uh, the inside and outside shot of the spacecraft. And I mean, when they were doing the simulation, it probably started to rain, so they ran inside the thing. And uh, of course, the uh, the astronauts are the whistleblowers, and they're sitting there waiting for it to stop raining. And they had a Hasselblad camera, so they took a picture of the window, right? When they when they went back outside, I guess they decided to take a picture of the outside of the window. Why would a spacecraft have a rain guard on it? That that window, when I was reading back through the documentations, when they were testing the vacuum testing, the original uh, uh, CSM, that, that particular window was blown out in a pressure test on it. And as you can see, it's just duct taped back on again. Window, um, the water is not just on the outside of the window. The water is in between the two layers of glass. The paint is peeling up in there. And if the seal's broken between the layers of glass, it doesn't seal for a vacuum to be traveling in space. There's no way it would hold the pressure. Yes, that's a very wild one. I consider that one of the many kill shots. And uh, Randy, are you going to include some of this here as well? Some of the, uh, uh, what was that? Include what? The photograph of the moisture buildup here. Yeah, I'm going to be going through a lot of um, uh, Scott's uh, catalog, and he has sent me his whole catalog. And I'm, going to through, I'm actually going to be going through with him um, bit by bit. I'm not going to put all of it in the book. It, sure. it, it's volumes. But um, there's going to be some significant photos that that one I think will be a really good one to put in the book. So, yes, there will be a series of his photos, and we'll uh, write a description of what's going on there. Definitely. And you could extend the series as well, because I thought it was a great a great choice and on your part that you uh, put out the book with only 200 pages. I thought that was enough. That That's plenty of information uh, to load someone up with. Yeah. Uh, the reason why I kept the book, actually, it, it could have been easily 500 pages. But of course, the, of course. Yeah. Given the nature of the book and the fact that it, it, it was fairly technical, um, I thought 200 pages would be enough. The, the next book would be about 300 pages. It's going to be a little bit more. Um, but um, a five or 600-page technical book is is just uh, it's difficult to read, and, and I, I wouldn't do that. I, I find it difficult myself. So when you have about a 200, 250-page book, I think that's enough. Yeah, that, that's, that's plenty right there. You don't yeah, have to yeah. go over that. 
We're yeah. just individual guys. We're not an entire office. <laughs> We're not NASA. We don't have NASA's budget to work with either. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. We don't have uh, we don't have an office of people you know helping us write and edit and so we do all this ourselves. So no doubt, I hear you. Yeah, it's a lot of work. Oh yeah, it's fun. It's fun. It is. It's it's a great time, and of course, your work again attracted a vice. Yes, um, I was very um, pleased that uh, I was contacted by the producer of HBO Vice, and that was um, actually um, she saw my interview with Paul on the plane, and um, that was actually a very successful interview as well. And um, she saw the interview and she contacted me and she asked me if I'd be, and we did a Skype call and she asked me if I'd be interested in an interview. And I said to her, I said, I would be, but I, I, I am a little bit concerned about how um, we would be portrayed because it's sort of the mainstream media. And she assured me that um, that they were taking this very seriously and that they wanted to do a serious uh, segment. And uh, it turned out that she she was being very honest, and that's exactly what she did. And I was very happy with the outcome. Uh, it was a fun experience. They flew a camera crew up here, and they, they interviewed me for a couple of hours. And um, and they did a very good – they did a very nice job in presenting myself, Bart Sabril, and Marcus Allen, the other two that are in the HBO Vice news segment – um, they presented this, pre- presented this rather as very credible, and I was very pleased with the outcome. Very nice, very nice. And of course, I do want to go off the rails just slightly here, and sure. I wanted your opinion on this one. Once again, I went back uh, to Netflix and watched the documentary Behind the Curve. And for those who don't know, Behind the Curve is a 2018 documentary uh, that you can find on Netflix that covers the Flat Earth Movement and, yeah. of course, particularly YouTuber Mark Sargent, who's been on this program as well. Yeah. And I, I'm sure you're familiar with Mark Sargent, correct? Yes, I am. I'm familiar with him and, and his work and uh, also familiar with Paul and the Plains work. And uh, when Paul and I were talking about the uh, doing the preliminary talks before the interview, I did make a stipulation that I did not want to discuss the flat earth theory, not because I, I still subscribe to the heliocentric uh, theory of of the universe, but right. I'm intrigued by the work that is going on with the flat Earth theory. But a lot of it is also um, disinformation as well. And again, you got to be careful who you're talking to here. Um, Paul on the plane does some very good work in terms of not so much saying that the Earth is flat. He's just looking at the photos and asking questions. And and you know these are legitimate questions. Mark Sargent actually has gone. Uh, further where he's actually claiming the earth is flat. I don't subscribe to the flat earth theory as of yet, and I see no reason to in the near future, but it is intriguing. Some of the questions they ask, what I like about the topic of the flat earth theory is some of the spin-off subjects that result from it. That I find very intriguing. So it's interesting work. I don't subscribe to it, but it's interesting. It's very interesting, and I, I myself am not a flat earther. I believe yeah. that the earth is round, not not perfectly round. But I I do subscribe to that, and I think Scott might have a different opinion. However, no, no, I I I like I like and am interested in the fact like Paul and I uh, do our videos together. We don't discuss flat Earth. We like I joke about it with him. Uh, <laughs> sure. Uh, things like that. The the one thing I have found out is the fact that. Uh, a lot of things in science are just assumed. They're not actually researched, okay? People don't have the answers for very scientific questions 
with the the exception of the fact that they're going to stand there and say the the earth is round but they haven't figured out how to prove it and that's that is what the flat earth society there like there are many sectors of the flat earth society i'm not a component of any one of them right right okay i'm a researcher okay yeah, I'm with well, you on that one. I, I just think it's definitely interest, interesting, just like... A, something to contribute to what uh-huh. I'm doing, which is the moon landing and everything else, mm-hmm. right? They have information. Some of their stuff works with me. Yes. Right? Yeah. That's what I was alluding to, that just the simple fact that some of the th- some of the stuff that they do present is quite interesting. Yes, they do. They ask some very serious questions. And the thing is, is science doesn't have an answer for it. They just assume that it's correct, but they don't actually have the answer. It's not researched. Right. But definitely, I'm not a flat earther, and I'm not trying to look down upon them either. But I also noticed that a lot of them are very, very religious. Not that that's a bad thing, but yes, a a lot of religious folks in that. A lot of their flat earth theories come from the ancient biblical things, even the drawings. Correct. Yeah. And the stuff from all religions, which is interesting. It is. That That's another fascinating thing about it. And I'm curious about you uh, and Randy, um, either one of you religious at all. Um, I'll go first on that. Um, I was brought up, uh, born and brought up a Catholic. But uh, in my adult years, I have to say, no, I don't subscribe to any one religious base, if I could put it that way. I do respect all people's religions and all beliefs. I think it's important to keep our minds open. I'm certainly not an atheist. I won't go that far. Sure. Um, I do believe that there is a lot more to our existence that science just does not explain it. And, and Scott is right. If science can't explain it, their attitude, it doesn't exist. And that's a very close-minded attitude to have. Um, but yeah, I do keep my mind open. I, I will say I'm spiritual in some sense, um, but I don't subscribe to any one um, theological base, if I could put it that way. Interesting. Go ahead, Scott. Well, you know, I'm I'm about the the same level as that. I mean, I respect all religions. Okay, I respect what they do. I I uh, understand the necessity for humans to need to believe in something. Okay, we all need to believe in something that is greater than that, us. And when you look around this planet, when you look around the universe, um, it just can't be random. Something with a much uh, greater force designed this. I certainly believe that. And I'm not going to say what, who, or how, or when, okay? I believe that uh, as a human being, we're only intelligent enough to look at it and wonder in awe. Yes. Right on. I'm with you on that as well. I was very curious what your take was on that, and I'm glad both of you answered uh, truthfully here. Very appreciated greatly. And I know we are winding down here on time, and time has uh, slipped past uh, very quickly here again. Yes, it has, actually. It really has. And I wanted to go back really quickly here uh, to the individuals involved, Apollo 11. Uh, Many say that why did the Apollo 11 crew lie about being in deep space? Um, is that for me or Scott? Uh, both of you, actually. It just seems like um, it just seems like the, the astronauts that uh, that have been to the moon allegedly, a lot of them come back uh, very odd. 
Yeah, take a look. First of all, um, these astronauts were um, under military control, and that's a big factor here. And this was a military mission, whether it was fake or not, and it obviously was fake, but it was still a military mission. And even though NASA is a civilian agency, you had a lot of military uh, hierarchy involved in directing these fake missions. So their astronauts were, of course, all military, or at least uh, most of them were. Armstrong, I believe, was a civilian when he signed up, but he still worked for a military aspect of it um, years ago. I think he was in uh, in the Navy, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, um, you just have to look at the Apollo 11 press conference when they came back, or supposedly came back. I right. mean, the looks, the, the, they would, they, they wished, uh, you look at their faces and you could tell they'd rather be somewhere else but there. They had to present themselves to the world, and they had to convince the world that they did this enormous scientific achievement. And the look on their faces was one of – well, they, they just looked very disturbed. And you just have to look at their behavior too. In the last 50 years, um, basically, Neil Armstrong became a recluse. He hardly gave any interviews. He should have been out in every school, every college, every university promoting these missions as real. He should have been promoting science and he did anything but promote science. And he was basically just went into seclusion, uh, seclusion for the last 50 years. <clears throat> Excuse me. Buzz Aldrin, Buzz Aldrin's even admitted he's had his fair share of problems. And I don't fault Buzz Aldrin for, you know, there's been allegations about alcoholism and depression. But, you know, that's a serious mental disorder and it's nothing to be laughed at. These men went through a lot too. And, and, and I think, as Scott will agree, and actually I think Scott said this to me first – that these they were ordered to do this. They were doing something that they thought at the time was necessary for their country, and they thought that they were doing it well. But at the same time, all three of them had to live with that lie. Yeah, go ahead, Scott. Yeah, I don't think I I don't think when they signed up for it uh, that they they knew they were going to be uh, doing some fakery. <clears throat> I think they signed up for it believing that they were going to be the first man on the moon or they were going to be part of those missions that put man on the moon, okay? And when when they were already household names, I mean, worldwide they were household names. They were as famous as any movie star, and they hadn't done anything yet, okay? They just couldn't walk away. NASA couldn't fire them, okay? And through, when three of them were killed, they had a duty to their family, they had a duty to their country, and they had a duty to their fallen comrades. And I believe they fulfilled it all. The they left the tragedy, you mean? Yes. They left the evidence in the video and in the photographs for you to see. And that's what I'm showing is that evidence is there. And at the same time, even though their, their uh, press conference uh, is very apparent that they didn't want to be there, they still performed that. They did the initial parades. I think uh, Neil Armstrong, I think once a year, he got up and made a little thing on the anniversary date, and that was it the rest of the time he disappeared. Uh, all of them quit working for NASA. That's I mean, interesting. Well, interesting that Werner von Braun quit, too, in 1972, I believe around the same the end of the last mission. Yeah, yeah, good the point. Best of the very best, and they all disappeared. That's yeah. very strange. And also, for those in the chat room, uh, I do have a GIF, an animated uh, photograph here of Buzz Aldrin punching that guy in the face. Bart Sabril. Bart, yeah. Yeah. Pretty yeah. solid right hand on uh, Buzz yeah. Aldrin there. 
that was a very revealing moment. Um, that I mean, there, I've heard um, pros and cons to that. You know, people criticize Barca Brill for getting too close or getting in Buzz Aldrin's face, and then the other side saying that Buzz Aldrin shouldn't have reacted the way he did. I tend to want to take a little bit more of the. Uh, I want to be a little bit more in offense. I look at both of that, and I see maybe maybe. I have to look at Buzz Aldrin and ask, well, you were presented as a statesman. Uh, there was other things you could have done before you belted this man. You could have called the police. You could have called security or the police. You could have walked away. There were many other um, uh, things that uh, Buzz Aldrin could have done. Uh, it was put a very- his hand on the Bible. Yeah, so he could have put his hand on the Bible. Well, if he believed in it, if he didn't, that's his choice, right? But he still could have done many other things. And when people in, when people endorse that kind of violence on the part of Buzz Aldrin, it disturbs me because then it says that there's two systems, two justice systems. There is a system where people can make the determination that they're going to hit somebody because they don't like what they said. And there's a system for the rest of us where if we did that, we'd be charged and we'd have to face a judge in court. Absolutely, and, yeah. Yeah, and and it bothers me that that people endorse that. Um, you know, you can argue both sides of this, but violence is not the answer. It's not the solution. There is too much of that in this world, and when that is your solution, there's something wrong. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. I'm all about protecting yourself and defending yourself. Yes, but over words, I, it should never get there, especially if it's just a few name calls or yeah. just just a few bad words. Anything really, it doesn't well, really matter. It's just the words. You shouldn't get hit over that. Exactly. And Buzz Aldrin had several choices. I mean, he was not backed into a corner. There was lots of room for him to walk away and he had people with him. And I have to I have to ask, why weren't the, his handlers there? I mean, he has handlers. Why weren't they getting uh, involved in this? Why didn't they intervene and stop it or whatever? All right. This should not have escalated the way it did. And it's easy to blame Bart Sabril. But you know what? Maybe if you look at the other side and maybe Bart Sabril uh, hit a nerve at Buzz Aldrin and maybe he asked him to face the truth and he couldn't. Just got to keep your hands to yourself. Exactly. That's really what you got to do and answer uh, the question anyone throws at you, especially when you're in the, the public eye. That's something that his handlers, I would imagine, told him. But uh, as you can clearly see, that didn't really matter. Our, our boy here, Buzz Aldrin, uh, threw a, a nice right cross there. He did, and he's lost his temper a few times. I'll give Neil Armstrong one uh, credit. He didn't lose his temper like Buzz Aldrin did. Um, not not as much anyway. Um, and sometimes he would give off the cop remarks, but not like Buzz Aldrin. For some reason, this man just seems to go ballistic every time somebody questions him about anything. And it's, it's behavior I've seen with him in clips going back 20 years. I mean, it's just it's very interesting when you watch it. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And of course, tonight we've been talking to Randy Walsh and Scott Henderson and more or less about his book, The Apollo Moon Missions, Hiding a Hoax in Plain Sight Part 1, which you can find on Amazon and all over the place, I can imagine. And it's a it's a great read. Ladies and gentlemen, you definitely go over the Saturn rocket, uh, the F1 engines, and you go over the computer uh, navigation system. And you, you go over all sorts of things, and you break it down in a very good way. And it's such a great book, very revealing look at the technological uh, challenges, just like it says in the back of your book here, uh, the very right on here on the description. Yes, um, and no, thank you for that. And uh, yes, I do talk about the Saturn V rocket, the navigation, and the Apollo guidance computer. I also get into the radiation belts as well as right. radiation in space and solar flares and shielding 
and thermal control micrometeorites, the whole, all of these elements that could have ended, any one of these elements which could have ended a mission in a matter of seconds, I get into all of that. And um, it's it's a good read. Uh, I hope that people will check it out. I hope that they enjoy it. And, and I appreciate it too. They can contact me. I have an email in there and they can let me know their thoughts. I get, I'm getting a lot of feedback in the book and I appreciate all of it. Understood. And of course, there's one more slide that I wanted to present uh, here. It was from uh, Scott. And this one's my favorite photograph of a rather odd anomaly that you found, uh, Scott. I, I think you can recall the uh, Corvette. Oh, yes. And the, the crater, the uh, the uh, car, car laying on the side of the bank of the crater is just shot created in there. Uh, that's just one of many cars that are available in the photographic record of the Apollo missions. Uh, and that's not the only car in that photograph itself. There's more laying down at the bottom of the, that uh, crater as well. Uh, most of the um, uh, set that the Apollo... Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Missions were simulated on were done in a scrapyard, a, a metal scrapyard. And you'll find all kinds of machine parts, uh, engines, uh, engine casings, um, Great photo. And as we wrap up here, just a, just a, maybe two more questions before I let both of you guys go here. And this one is for both of you. Uh, what would convince you, either one of you, that we did go to the moon? Um, Y'all go first. Yeah, I go guess. ahead. Um, that we use different technology that we don't know about because anything short of that will not convince me because it didn't happen with the technology we have. It's not capable of going to the moon and back in a manned mission. I want to emphasize that. I'm talking about on-man missions. I'm talking about manned missions. So if there is classified technology that we don't know about, maybe that the military is using, and they reveal that, that might convince me. Amazing. Go ahead, uh, Scott. Uh, what would convince me that yes. we yes, sir. Uh Dinner at the Trump Plaza Hotel Tranquility Base. <laughs> That's a good answer. Yeah, don't hold your breath on that, Scott. I'll take it. Good answer there. And of course, if we haven't gone to the moon, then uh, this one's for both of you. Then where was this taped exactly? In your in your opinions, was this taped somewhere in California? That's no, I, I I believe it's I believe it's uh, Flagstaff, Arizona. You say Arizona. What what do you think? Cinder Lake. What do you think, Randy? Yeah, no, I'm with Scott on this. Um, I think that's uh, actually probably one of the best locations. I've seen some locations in Hawaii that might be um, there. They might have done some shots there as well. Um, Flagstaff probably would uh, be the location. And it's also interesting to note here that the U.S. Ge Geological Survey filmed every aspect of those simulations in Flagstaff. Incredible. And I want and I want to add one more thing. Go ahead. People tell me that, um, and this is a, this is I hear this all the time, and it just makes me laugh every time I hear it. That um, we didn't have the technology back then in terms of photography, so to say, it would have been a lot easier to go to the moon than to fake it. No, no, no. It would have been a lot easier to fake it than to go to the moon. Keep in mind, the military was in control here. They oversaw every aspect of these simulations. 
and the military has, um, I think as, as Scott will tell you, and Scott has said, they have the biggest studios studios in the world, bigger than, than, than Hollywood. They're far capable of um, photographic techniques that we don't know about. And a lot of their photographic techniques are classified, so we don't know what they're capable of doing. Incredible stuff, really. And can we both agree that Stanley Kubrick was not involved? Yeah, I, I think that's kind of like it. It's it's interesting because his name because it's very prominent. In it this, always does. It, yeah, it may be a front um, to throw us off who was really involved. There's some evidence that he was involved. I'll keep my mind open on that. I don't really know for sure. Yeah, I'm not quite sure of myself if he had any sort of involvement, which I don't really think he did, but I'll, I'll keep an open mind to it. A lot of yeah. individuals say that, so we'll just uh, we'll leave we'll leave it open. And of course, yeah. with all the newfound alien planets being found, making the news at a space.com new article just got posted up. Um, I was talking to Scott the last time he was here, and he kind of was not much of a believer in extraterrestrial life. Uh, Randy, are you under the same notion? Um, that's a very, um, well, that's a very loaded, but interesting question. I'm off the notion that there may be other forms of life out there, but forms of life that number one, we cannot comprehend that we can't even envision. And, uh, number two, if they do exist, um, and they're going back and forth and visiting us, the question is number one, why? And if, and if they are, it certainly isn't to observe us, we'd be like ants on a field to them. We would be so insignificant to their level of thinking and technology, we wouldn't matter to them. So um, I have to sort of say I, I haven't really seen concrete evidence that there is alien life out there. If there is and they're coming here, they want nothing to do with us. That That's kind of my opinion at this point anyway, until something changes. That, that's, that's where I'm at. Yeah, I would have to say so. Why yeah. would they have any interest in us? Uh, we're that we're we're insignificant. I mean, we can't stop killing each other. We can't stop fighting with each other. I mean, just look at where we are. I mean, uh, we have countries, we have borders, we have religions, we have, and there's nothing wrong with that. But we have a, a recipe for conflicts. We have different educational systems. We have uh, we we families can't get along together, let alone friends and, and enemies. I mean, we we have a long way to go. We really do. Nobody has any interest in us. We definitely have a long way to go. And before I let both of you guys go, I'll turn over to Scott here. Uh, Scott, do you have any final parting words uh, for the audience here? Any words of advice or just anything on your mind that you want to get out? Well, I, I think what people need to understand is that we have been fed this from the time we were children, that we are a species that is capable of anything and doing anything, and that space flight is part of that. Okay. Need to people need to open their eyes and look at the reality of what is happening. Uh, what was claimed to have happened in 1969, landing on the moon, and the difference between then and today, there is no difference. We're not sending people into space. Okay. NASA is not even functioning as a space uh, company at the particular moment, and they haven't been for the last nine years, and people have to understand that they're out of business, okay? They're not in the business of space travel, okay? People don't even understand that. Just, just because they're, they're getting uh, $52 million a day to spend uh, to employ people, they're working on other projects for sure, okay? 
they're working on our communications, they're working on uh, supersonics uh, flight for commercial aircraft, right? They're also working on other military projects uh, like the next fantasy space force that's going up there, right? Right. But, but the, uh, the, the, the fact that humans are not traveling in space. I'm not saying that we don't have satellites that aren't up there that are operating. We can certainly create a military defense system with with unmanned uh, vehicles, okay? But as far as humans traveling outside of our own atmosphere, okay, there's a huge problem there. And it's not just radiation and it's not just fuel problems, not anything. The vacuum of space is a serious barrier to our travel. Yes. And of course, before I let both of you individuals go here, uh, Randy, I was going to ask you the same question about uh, what you would like to get off your chest or anything you have on your mind. But something came up here uh, in my mind about Canada. There seems to be some sort of uh, murder hunt going on. Yeah, um, we're in, um, actually, I'm in Toronto here, and uh, this happened out, I think, in Alberta or Manitoba. There was the two teenagers that, right. are on, that are on the run right now. They apparently killed, uh, and, and this is allegedly, I don't know, you can't always trust the news here, but they apparently had, um, they're being accused of killing two tourists, one from America, one from the United States, and one from Australia. Yeah, the boyfriend. And that, yeah, boy, boyfriend and girlfriend, they were found shot dead. And then they found a 64-year-old professor. Um, he was linked to the uh, – he was found dead as well. And they've been on the run, and apparently they're hiding in the bush. And uh, it's got a lot of people uh, uh, a little bit on nerve right now. So, yeah, it's big news. That's um, crazy. And, yeah, and the father made a very interesting point, one of the kids' fathers. And he said, I don't know what happened to my son. He says, whatever happened, this did not happen overnight. You just don't wake up one morning and say you're going to go out and kill three people. Wow, very uh, yeah. a very insightful uh, man. Very so, dark. Yeah, something more going on here. Yeah, I just want to say be careful out there. Yes, yes, definitely. And some wild uh, teenagers roaming around out there. Yeah, and they may not be guilty, but you know, um, we'll see what happens. Um, it, it's it's there may be more to it. Definitely. Well, but, but the only thing you're going to see around here this weekend is Elvis, because the big Elvis festival is here this weekend. <laughs> oh, nice! That's pretty cool. I like that. Elvis, a very talented musician. Classic yes. stuff there. Yeah. yeah. And both of you guys are into music. I forgot. Yeah, um, it's one of my hobbies. Um, I um, I play classical guitar. I like to upload videos, and nice. I have fun with that. I don't do it seriously. I just have fun with it. And uh, and uh, I like classical guitar, but I like classic rock. So uh, I don't know how you conflate the two, but <laughs> it's um, um, yeah, music is a big part of my life. I love it. Um, classical music, right up to classic rock. So Sweet. Um, yeah, I play yeah. I play bass and guitar. Oh, bass. Oh, I'm a big bass fan myself, Love actually, bass. but uh, I just do better on the guitar, so I'll stick with what I'm better at. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> I definitely need to get a, a six-string bass pretty soon here. Yeah, fascinating, isn't it? I'd love to. I'd actually love to hear that six-string bass. I can't. I can't. I have trouble enough with the four strings, so. <laughs> I've been playing for over 10 years, so I think it's time to go with a, a six. Yeah, well, it gives you a lot more range, doesn't it? It does. I'm thinking yeah. definitely a six would be good. But yeah, yeah. definitely uh, 
both of you gentlemen here, I, I do want to thank both of you guys for being on the program. I had such a fun time, and uh, time is definitely not on our side here, and we definitely have to close this down. So, Randy, I definitely want to give you the honors of uh, plugging anything you'd like, and Scott, go ahead as well after Randy here, but uh, Randy, go ahead and plug anything you'd like, any final parting words. Uh, the yeah. stage is yours, my friend. Yes, I just like to first of all I'm uh, meeting some very interesting people in this uh Marcus Allen for one uh Scott Henderson uh, I've had the opportunity of now connecting and speaking with Barca Brill so um and I also want to thank the listeners out there for taking an interest in this subject and I want to say to them directly do not allow me or anyone else to dictate to you about what is real and what is not as real all I ask is that all of you do your own research and uh, I'm not asking or uh, suggesting that you should agree with me. Just please do your own research. You don't even have to read my book. I mean, just do your own research. Look into this for yourselves. That's the best thing you can do for yourselves. Do not take anything at face value and look into it and research it. Randy, go ahead. I mean, Scott, go ahead. Oh, okay. Yes, I, I always like to thank Marcus Allen because he's the one that brought me to the forefront. If you want to... Uh, seriously research or listen to any of the history and the political history of the Apollo missions and uh, the Russian involvement and their programs. Marcus Allen is the man. I mean, he he has that information uh, in many of his talks that he has, and he's doing them all the time. He has many, many broadcasts out there that you can follow along for that type of information. Uh, Bart Sabrell, of course, is the uh, film. He he can, uh, if you watch any of his stuff, you'll find uh, anything on the uh, film and videos shot on the uh, Apollo missions. Uh, my work is available on the uh, Aulis site, and uh, my videos are produced by Paul on the Plane. And uh, I also like to thank Randy for including me in his book. And uh, other than that, like look at my look at my work, look at the photographs, look at them with a new light. You don't have to believe any of it. Okay, the photographs are fake. They're simulations. And once you see that and realize that, the search then is to find out where is the truth. Okay, how far can we travel in space? How great are our expectations, and what are our limitations? Definitely. So once again, I definitely want to thank both of you for being a part of the program. And we will definitely have to do this again in the near future. Uh, gentlemen. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, for sure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Michael. All right, boys. I'll talk to both of you on the other side. Okay. Cheers. All right. Mahalo. Okay. Take care, guys. Yeah. Yep. Bye-bye. Right. Good night. Bye-bye. And there they go, boys and girls. That was Randy Walsh and Scott Henderson. Great time. And now I'm seeing that the second guest is ready to go. So that means it is time for a little break. And when I return, part two with Ronnie Dawson. Don't go anywhere. And welcome back to the second half of the program. And I am joined by another soul. Ronnie Dawson. Let's bring him in now since he is patiently awaiting. Uh, Ronnie, what's going on? Hey, Michael, how are you doing? It's I'm good, good to be here. I'm good, my friend. I'm glad you have returned. You are a, a veteran here of the program. It's not your first rodeo here. Yeah, this is my second time. Yeah, man. I'm glad you're here. 
Yeah, we didn't do very long last time, but so hopefully we can get a little more in there. And, and there's been some things happened since then, I think. Hell yeah. So, so much has been going on. And if in our private conversation right now, you were actually listening in uh, during the first half here. Yeah. You know, I was listening in and, you know, my, my grandfather used to have a, have the opinion that, that we didn't go to the moon and that it was, it was all just to fool the Russians. That was, that was his thinking. Wow. He was ahead of the, he was ahead of the curve. <laughs> yeah. This is a long time ago. So, you know, he didn't believe the government. He, he, he thought it was all a, all just to pull the Russians in the Cold War as to, our, to the, the degree of our technology. Right, right, right. And what did you think of my first guest, if you have any opinions, Ronnie? I'm curious to know. Yeah, I th- you know, I think they bring up some some valid points. And, uh, yeah, you know, you really have to you have to listen with the open mind and say, all right, well, you know, why is this so, you know, if if it's not if it's not so, then why? You know, right, that's, right. The same, that's the same thing with the flat earthers. You know, I don't believe the earth is flat, but I, you know, I listen to what they say and uh, and say, you know, they do bring up some valid points and some of their some of, some it, of it, yeah, some of it is valid. That's true. You can't just completely dismiss them. It's a strange world. It really is. It, it is a completely strange world, especially the time that we live in uh, right now, twenty nineteen, almost uh, the year. 2020. I mean, it, it's even strange even saying that out loud. I know with all this stuff going on in the news and UFOs being, uh, you know, on the news and, and it's, you know, I never thought I'd see this. Stuff, I was going to, yeah, I'm going to ask you about that. And <laughs> during the beginning of the program, I said that history tends to repeat itself. And it really is. We're, we're coming back full circle with all the things that were going on in the 40s and 60s in terms of UFOs becoming popular uh, yet again. And the same with the moon landing. Yeah, you know, you know, I know, I know firsthand. Uh, you know, in, in fact, tomorrow we're I'm taking a group down to look. We have some, we have an alien metal sphere, uh, and I think if you heard Bob Lazar on the Joe Rogan show, did you get a chance to hear that? I didn't get a chance to hear that, but I was told uh, all about that. Uh, what, what was your perception of that? And uh, I try to watch the documentary that was on Netflix with. Um, the other gentleman who made the documentary, uh, Jeremy Corbell. Yeah, yeah, I seen that too. I, you know, and I could have done, I could have done without him being in any of the documentary. To be honest with you, Ronnie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but Bob, I think Bob did a great job. You know, I always, I always believe Bob, and uh, and uh, I think it was really good. You know, but he, I heard some stuff that I never had heard. See, we we have this this metal sphere that we that we have up here near me, and I found a guy with it. And uh, and we've been examining this thing and researching it. And uh, yes, and and, it, and Ronnie, I have to cut you off really quickly here and say we we have to backtrack here. I think we jumped off. Uh, we we jumped way off course here. I think we need to back it up here. And Ronnie, definitely tell us a little bit about yourself before we jump right back into the fire here. Yeah, yeah. I'm a okay. I'm a I'm a UFO experiencer and an alien contactee. And uh, you know that. And like I said, I've been up close and personal. You know, it, it's. You know, I see everybody fascinated by this stuff that's going on in the news and everything, but right. I mean, I, I've been within 12 inches of an alien. At one point, they requested me to have sex with an alien so they could get a genetic sample. Yes. They took, they let me go through a dimensional portal that took me to where they came from at, at, at my request. And, you know, so some of the stuff I've seen is just it would blow most people's minds off. But you have to realize, you know, I'm still a normal guy. If I don't pay my electric bill, they're still going <laughs> to shut off my electricity. You know, so, oh, yeah. So I, 
I'm trying to deal with, you know, and, and that's the way contactees are. You know, I, I have to deal with what I experience, but at the same time, I still have to work. I still have to pay bills. We'll, we'll jump have- in. Yes, we'll jump into that part uh, here in a moment. But I'm also very curious about your very early years, your upbringing. Uh, were you born into a v- very religious household out there? Uh, no, I, not my family. We were uh, my, you know, I was raised by a family of deer poachers. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> they, I see. We would go out and shoot deer, you know. <laughs> and so, and uh, you know, that's just the kind of yeah. This is kind of a rural. I'm about 80 miles out of Fort Worth, Dallas, out here in the middle of the hill country, and uh, and life is different out here. You you probably hear dogs barking in the background. Man. That's okay. I, the town town I live in is about 2,000 people. You know, I have a high school education. I drive a truck for a living, and and I I've not and I've worked nights uh, all the time, and I've never seen anything like UFOs or anything like that up until about 2009. So I was kind of a skeptic and non-believer. All these until, years, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. It was like, you know, I wondered and I thought, well, you know, I work out there at night, all night long. And if anybody sees something, it should be me. And I just, you know, for 30 years, I didn't see anything. So I thought, well, you know, I don't know about these people, you know, that actually see this stuff. But about 2009, uh, they changed my mind rather quickly. We started seeing some stuff out here in the oil field where I work here and uh, just lights moving above the trees that you couldn't explain with any known reason, I mean, there's nobody near it to fly a, a, you know, a drone or anything like that. And, and, uh, and then it just progressed, you know, I seen a cow get abducted, you know, that freaked me the hell out when I seen that. I mean, if if you, if you've never seen anything like that, that is uh, something to see. Right, 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 right. I definitely want to go back here and ask when your first experience was Ronnie, I believe you've had multiple ones, if I recall. Oh yeah. And it, and it, it just, it started about 2009 when we were seeing the last move through the tree. And uh, like I said, all the way to 2017 when they finally paid me a visit at my home here in Ranger, Texas. So I actually got to meet them firsthand. And and, uh, and it's it's quite a story on how that came about. And, and it, it tells you a lot about where these guys came from, how alien implants are put into people. And, you know, it answers a lot of questions for me. It's like and at one point uh, I had a home alien home invasion. Oh, my. And they held me hostage in my bed, and they uh, I was wide awake when it happened. And they and they froze. They they interrupted the signal between my brain and my muscles to where I couldn't move. Now, and and you have to think, and all this stuff they could, you know, they could hit you with this thing and make a a whole fleet of planes, you know, fall into the Bermuda Triangle. You know, this kind of stuff had been going on. If you were swimming in the ocean, they could hit you with it and you'd drown. If you were driving a car and they hit you with it, you would wreck. This specific incident or experience you had, rather, is this the one that caught the attention of a crew from Japan? Yeah, they were, they, they had heard the alien invasion ha- uh, story and, and, uh, and I got a, I got a phone call from a weird number and, and I decided that I would answer it because I could really get a lot of spam and it's like, one, sure. this is one of the ways they get you. They just spam you to death. So you won't answer any phone calls. And I thought I would take this one and, and I could barely understand what they were saying. And it, and it was, uh, the Japanese TV and they, they wanted to come to America and they did like a 15 minute, uh, segment on caught on camera that it's going to air on Japanese TV. So I had a Japanese TV crew here come to come out to my house 
And uh, you could tell they hadn't been to America before because they asked me if they needed a four-wheel drive to get to my rural location. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> I told them a minivan mini would work just fine. <laughs> we're right <laughs> off the interstate here. You know, they like were, you know, they were worried that uh, they'd have to have a four-wheel drive and it would be up in the mountains, and they just didn't have a clue. Yeah, and I also like your book, by the way. Thank you. It's uh, yeah, You know, I wrote – I didn't – I never wanted to write a book, Michael. I never – you know, I was I always – you know, I always question, you know, say, that's going to make my story less credible because people are going to think I just made that crap up to sell a freaking book. And and I didn't really want to write, want to write a book, but I had I've, I was having some bad things happen. And I and I was beginning to think that I was fixed to be taken out or I wasn't going to be around very long. And I wanted to get the UFO alien encounter in print somehow that if I did get taken out, at least there would be a record of what had happened to me. And, and and then it got it occurred to me, you know, that, that writing a book is almost like an insurance policy. You know, if something happens to me mysteriously and I die, the book's going to get more popular and the story's going to get more heard. So it's almost like taking out an insurance policy, and and all a lot of that weird stuff uh, and close calls stop happening after I publish the book. Well, the day before the home invasion. Uh, I had had two actual craft sightings in a seven-day period, and uh, and I went up to a buddy of mine's house that lives here in town, on the edge of town, Alan Austersteel, and I said, "Hey, man," I said, I said, "Let's go. I want to go UFO watching, and I have this. I got this high-powered laser. I want to shoot this laser near the craft to see if I can see if the the laser beam will deviate because of the craft's propulsion system. If there'd been any time and space, my thinking was that the light beam should appear to bend." So I said, I really want to uh, do this ex- experiment on a UFO, and I've seen a bunch of them, and two in the last seven days, and it's a good chance we're going to see one. And I want you to record it on a on a on the camera while I do it, in case I do catch something. The skeptics and critics won't have, you know, I, it'll be more, uh, you know, my word to be more backed up with video footage of the whole thing. So right. He agreed to it, and uh, we were up. We were up at his house in his backyard, and he lives on the edge of town. And it's nice and dark up there. It's on the hill, and uh, and I didn't think we were going to see anything. There was some jets flying around, and the and the jets left. And he's the one that seen it. He said, "Look there, what is that?" And there was like a, a four light craft that lit up, probably about three hundred yards from us. And uh, I grabbed my laser and I fired it around the craft, and I didn't I didn't get the beam deviation I was hoping to get. And then I shined the laser. It was one of these green high-powered lasers. It's a little bit stronger than a classroom laser. And I shined it on the surface of the craft. And it occurred to me, you know, this is probably crazy because uh, if they fire their laser back, we may be two piles of ashes laying in this guy's backyard, and people are going to wonder what happened. You know, I thought, wow, this may not be a good idea. You know, they may take this wrong. And I, and I thought – I looked over at my friend. And I said, I hope you're catching this on the camera. And I looked at him, and he was standing there gawking at the thing with his mouth wide open and his hands on his hip going, oh, my God, what do you think that is? And I'm going, dude, you're supposed to be recording this. My God, man, you need – why aren't you recording this? And he grabbed the camera, and we tried to get it up and running, and then the thing just blinked out like they do. All four lights on the thing just blinked out. And but an alien invasion happened the next night. The next night, I came home from work and there's a hole. and I and I have I have a cat that lives here in the house and this thing is declawed. He doesn't even have any claws. And, and and I came home and my cat is missing and I went to look into my house and there's a hole, a big hole chewed in the floor one one of my bathrooms. It's a it's an old house, but I can't imagine how a declawed cat could chew such a big hole in the floor. So I was kind of upset. And rightfully so. The house. And so uh, I was trying to I retrieve the cat, and, you know, and I was reaching down in there and calling the cat, and I could hear him 
down and I looked down in the hole and I seen it. I seen a couple of scary looking damn eyes looking up at me. And I don't know if it was a cat or something else. Then it occurred to me that's probably the dumbest thing I've ever done was stick my arm in that dark hole trying to feel it for a cat. That's true. And and uh, so it kind of freaked me out. So I thought because that you know. We have skunks, we have raccoons, man. We have all sorts of stuff around here. So, and I thought, man, it might not be my cat. So, uh, I went out and, and uh, I seen where the blocks had been moved out from the side of the house that blocks it off where you, you access the underneath of the house where all the plumbing and stuff is. And I retrieved the cat. I got the cat to come to me and I pulled it up, pushed the blocks back. And I came, got me a big heavy piece of tin and I put over the hole. And I was frustrated that it happened in the first place. So I, it was time to go to bed. And, and so I go in there and lay down. And I no sooner lay down and then I hear stuff start breaking in the kitchen. And I'm, and I'm going, what in the damn... This damn cat is really pissing me off today, and I try to get out of bed, and all of a sudden, I don't feel anything, but when I tried to move, I couldn't move. Ooh. I was like frozen in this bed. It was like peeing in the bed. You couldn't feel it. It felt like there was nothing wrong with you until you tried to get up, and then all of a sudden, you felt this invisible force holding you down. Yes. At this point, you didn't think it was maybe you were undergoing maybe sleep paralysis. Well, I, actually, I thought I was trying to have a heart attack oh, or something damn. like that. I was more concerned about some kind of medical issue. Sure, you know? yeah. It's like something medically is wrong with me. I wasn't worried about the breaking stuff in, in the in the kitchen anymore. I was worried about why can't I yeah. move. But next thing I noticed is the cat is standing in my open door, and he's looking very nervously back towards the kitchen. And and then I hear some noise breaking in the dishes being knocked over and stuff in the kitchen. And, and I realized that there's something in the house other than the cat. So now I've got two problems. i got something in the house, and and I'm pinned in this damn bed and came up. And, uh, you know, it's not, it's not a good situation to be in. But anyway, the cat, all of a sudden, he comes he comes running there and jumps up on the bed with me. Well, I can't move, but the cat is moving just fine. And so I'm wondering why the cat can move, but I can't move. And <laughs> yes. And then all of a sudden I see something streaked by the, the door in my bedroom. And I mean, whatever this thing is, is moving. I've never seen anything. It moved so fast that all you could see was a blur. It just a blur went by, a blur went back. And then I could hear drawers opening, stuff being shuffled around. Uh, uh, there was a, a lamp knocked over by on the computer desk and, uh, and it broke. And so there's stuff, you know, and I'm going, what in the world is going on here? And I'm yeah. thinking, and I'm hoping, hoping it's squirrels. I'm thinking, we've had squirrels. Uh, we have a drop-down ceiling, and the squirrels have got into my attic and fell down into the house before, and I've had to catch them with welding gloves and release them outside, you know? Right. And I'm hoping squirrels, but it's it's certainly moving faster than a squirrel, and, it, and it's a lo lot larger than a squirrel. I've never seen a squirrel move like that, but this, and, uh, you know, so I'm pinned in the bed. There's something running around in the house. The cat's upon the bed, nervous as hell. Right. <laughs> and, and then all of a sudden I see this thing run across a vertical wall and I'm going, okay, you know, not even a damn squirrel can run across a vertical wall. And it's like gravity didn't apply to the damn thing. And then, so it went flying by the wall. And I thought, oh my God, what the? And, I, and it occurred to me, it's probably it's probably something to do with last night. You know, last night I shot a laser at a UFO. Maybe that has something to do with it. Plus, right. I'm pinned in the bed, and it doesn't appear to be a heart attack. And you know, so there's a lot of things that say that this is not sleep paralysis by no means. Because I really had a, I got up later, and I had, you know, I couldn't go back to sleep. Man, I was <laughs> shook up. Man. 
Okay, but but let me see. One of them stopped in front of the door, and I got a good look at this thing finally. And this thing, it looked like it was about two feet tall. It looked more like an insect than anything. It, it, even it, it ran up on all fours, and then it stood up on its back two legs, and its front arms were so long they still could almost touch the floor. And it looked more like an insect. It had like an exoskeleton shell on it. Ah. It even had thorns. It had these thorn-looking appendages sticking out of it. And uh, this thing was standing right at my door, he, and there was two other ones still running around the house. And this thing, it looked at the other two, and I never heard it make a sound, but it was almost like he had scolded them to get back to doing what they were supposed to be doing because I heard all of a sudden they stopped running around and started opening drawers and stuff like that. And, so. Ronnie, um, is that what you're describing? Is that what you sent me a photograph of? No, I did not get no pictures of that. Uh I didn't get any pictures of this because, uh, like I said, I didn't have any cameras or anything set up in the house at the time. Right. So I, I, I didn't get any pictures of this. I've got a lot of pictures that I took of some stuff later on, but I didn't get any pictures of this thing. Oh, okay. But, but anyway, this thing, I mean, he looked at the other two. They went to search into the house again, and then all of a sudden they ran up underneath the bed that I was under. And then the cat, he tore out of that room like his ass was on fire, <laughs> sliding around the curve. Uh, you know, sliding around the doorway and right. took off. And uh, and I didn't see anything pursuing. Well, the next thing you know, they're clawing at the underneath of my bed, and they're, they're lifting the bed and the bed frame off the floor with me on it. And at that time, I was a, I was a 200, and I, I bet you I had to be like 260, 270 pounds, you're and they're big, bouncing me. Yeah, you're a big boy. Yeah, they're bouncing me off the bed. They're lifting the whole bed and the bed frame, and they're bouncing me off the bed, and still I'm paralyzed and can't do anything about it. And I think, man, I'm just at the mercy of these things, and they're clawing underneath of the bed, and they actually clawed through the box spring cover. And, uh, you know, if, if you ever looked at a box spring, it's nothing but a wood box and, that has a cover on it, and then mine happened to have a, a piece of heavy wire that was, like, nailed to the top of it. And uh, they had clawed through the cover, and they got up in there. You could see claw marks on the wood where they – and and the, they had actually grabbed the, that metal, like, uh, wire mesh that goes across the top of it and bent it by pulling on it. So they were shaking the hell out of it. I don't know if they were trying to claw through there to get to me or what they were doing, but it, it was wasn't anything I could do. It was very. Fr I was scared to death at first, and then after a while, you just get frustrated and pissed off. And and I, I went to being really pissed off instead of scared. First, I was just scared to death, and then after a while, it was either kill me or let me go. And then. I just got mad, and I decided, man, I'm going to fight this damn force that's holding me down. There's a golf club bag in the corner. I'm going to grab this club, and I'm going to kill these damn things. I'm going to have me an alien on my wall. <laughs> and and I just, I tried to fight it, and, and and this thing, this force that was holding me down, all of a sudden, it, it grabbed my heart. It grabbed my lungs. I felt like I was fixing to freaking die right there, man. I mean, it felt like I was going to have a heart attack, and I'm not so sure uh, that this ain't what causes some people to have heart attacks. You know, and, and die. Yeah. Because it, it really hurt. I mean, it really, I mean, I laid back after I seen it, I couldn't do anything. And I just, I was like, you know what? They can just kill me, but I'm not going to, I can't, I'm not going to fight it again to that level because it hurts. That sounds terrifying. But I noticed when they, when they got to the place where the laser was being kept that I had used the night before, everything stopped. Everything got, got quiet down. I couldn't see them running around anymore. It was like the encounter stopped. And all of a sudden, they released me. It was like they released the force that was holding me in place in that bed. All of a sudden, Michael, and this is what's weird, is my body jumped out of that bed, and I had 
screamed and cussed, and I grabbed that damn golf club out of that bag. And I had tried to do this five minutes earlier without success. Now, it was like my body's acting like a dadgum robot, man. I had tried to do this five minutes earlier, not now. All of a sudden, my body jumped up and did something I told it to do five minutes ago. And I'm, but I'm pissed off as hell, and I've got this golf club in my hand. It's like the rage came back. And I went on a damn alien hunt, and I looked all through my house, and I seen the broken stuff they had broken. Every drawer and cabinet in the whole freaking house was open. It was like they had just—they were looking. They had they, they didn't bother the closing anything, you know. Yeah, how rude! That's very—they were very rude to you. I—I I wanted to call the police over there to, you know, try to get fingerprints and stuff like this. Oh, I'm no. a hazardous material driver. It's what I do for a living, you know. Nobody wants to hire. Uh, hazmat driver who chases aliens around his house. You know, that's not the guy you want to have on your payroll. So I decided that calling the police over there is probably not a good thing for my career. Probably not. I don't think they would uh, respond the kind of way you'd expect them to. No, and that's probably the reason a lot of people don't say anything, you know. And I didn't want to say anything, but I told my buddy Alan about it. And I know he changed the locks on his doors and stuff like that. And so it must have bothered him a little bit. <laughs> you know? well, it was a pretty but wild it, story. And Ronnie, that, I, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, they got the attention of the Japanese, and that was the reason they they wanted to come do a story on me. And man, I've been in the UK. I've been in the Metro News in the UK, the Blasting News in Italy. I've been on several news agencies, all all international news stories. In the US, nobody knows who I am because there's just so much competition here. You know, people, anybody. That's wild, though. That they uh, brought a crew all the way from Japan just to cover your story. I'm still blown yeah. away by that. That's the first time I'd ever been cussed at in Japanese. They, cut, they, <laughs> yes. cut, they cussed at you in Japanese. I guess. I don't know. They, they, they didn't like the way I kept looking at the camera. You know, it was hard. Never been on TV before. It's hard not to look at that big old camera looking at you, you know? So, That's true. But anyway, uh, and then they sent me a copy of it that, that deleted itself. And they told me it would delete itself, and it did. Yeah. I put it on my computer, and 30 days later, it deleted itself, just like they said it would. Now, that <laughs> so, is weird. Yeah, that's some technology there, man. I've never heard of that before. Very interesting. <laughs> I know, man. Those guys are way ahead of us, <laughs> you know, in every every aspect. I think. <laughs> so yeah, that that experience for you talking to those individuals out there, did that bring any more attention to your home? Uh, it by the locals is is what I'm wondering. Not really, man. You know, yeah, I'm one of those guys. I don't get at you know nobody really. I'm, people are just now are starting to figure out that uh, who I am, and that I've been on the radio and I've been on TV and and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, I'll I'll sign something and people will save the autograph. You know, like I am somebody. <laughs> I don't think I'm somebody, but it's pretty cool that people yeah, think you are somebody. That's cool. And also, you reported this to Mufon, and I remember the last time we talked. You weren't that quite happy with them either. Well, uh, the thing was, you know, I, I I had so many reports. Every time I'd see lights, every time I'd see craft, I'd report it to MUFON. I reported it to MUFON. I reported it to MUFON. And, and oh my God, they just they did a terrible job of researching it, and uh, and they don't follow up, and they don't tell me what's going on with it. And and the you know, only reason I reported it was to communicate to other people. That I had seen something, hoping that somebody else had seen something, and then I realized that there's not much communication goes on, and I realized that there was that there was some people down uh, in a town south of Abilene, Texas, that recorded that had a blue light, and they recorded one of their cows being abducted, and it looked just like what I had seen, and I wanted to contact those people, and they wouldn't give me the information, so that pissed me off. It was like, 
you know, this is the people I like to talk to, but no, no, you're not allowed to talk to them. So. Right, right, right. And so the, I was just frustrated with Yeah, them. it's interesting you say that because as we've known throughout time or over the years, rather, MUFON has had its own uh, internal issues going on and not exactly that surprising. And, uh, yeah, and anyway, a, a year after the home invasion, I had it. And like I said, these guys, they don't, I don't see them all the time. They, they come around about once a year and, and, and you kind of let your guard down and all of a sudden, wham, here they are back again. And it scares, uh, it scares me every time, just as bad as it did the first time. It scares the and, piss out of you. And then one year, exactly one year after the alien home invasion, I was at work and then it was the Coleman, Texas sighting. And I had three, I seen three craft. And I mean, one of them approached me really close and I got some pictures and I got some video and I was very excited because I'd been working really hard to try to get some photographic evidence and MUFON had insisted that I try to get some photographic evidence. So I finally got some photographic evidence and this is some of the stuff that I sent you on the on the thing there. Yeah, I see and, it now, yeah. And what happened was there was three, you know, there was a, a disc, a light, and then, it, and then it started approaching me and it got so close to me, I actually looked up and I seen the disc blocking out the stars overhead. And that scared the hell out of me. And I went and hid. And from my hiding place, there was a, a, the compartment underneath the craft. A huge light came on. And I was hiding. And, I, and uh, at this point, my knees were shaking so bad, man. I, I really wanted to run, but I couldn't have pulled off a run to save my life. You know, I always thought I'd be good in the military. But I realized right then that my knees were shaking so bad, I couldn't even run, man. I could barely pull off a walk. I wouldn't be worth a damn in the military. And, <laughs> That's funny. And uh, But I got a picture from my, from my hiding spot. Cause I could do nothing else, but I was just waiting for something to come rushing out of the dark at me. And I guarantee you, man, if you ever, it's fun watching sky fi horror, but to live sky fi horror, that is a whole nother thing. Of course, thing. of course. That's that must've been terrifying. People don't understand. Yeah. To, to be out there with a UFO over the top of you and hiding behind a tree and shaking so bad that you can't possibly flee and just waiting for something to come rushing you out of the dark is not a pleasant experience. It's not something, it, I have to deal with these critics and and uh, just rude people, man. And I said, you you have no idea. I was like, I wish I could put them in my shoes. And, you know, if I had a time machine, I could take them back and say, experience this. And then judge. I hear you. I hear you. And over the years, I noticed abduction cases haven't really been too publicized whatsoever. It seems like there haven't been uh, too many out there, it seems like. Well, you know, I... I filed a F, FAA low craft report on that on that sighting down in Coleman, Texas, because I'd seen three craft, and one of them being a huge mothership. Like I said, that one craft it it, came, it approached me and and it started backing away, and I was like, thank God, I guess I'm gonna still be here because I I was thinking I may be going away for a while. It backed off, and I got so relieved because it backed off, and then a military jet, I could hear a military jet come in. It passed right over where the UFO was. It, I thought it would should have collided with it, but it didn't. The military jet circled around and left. And before the, the jet even left the area, I could still see the lights of the jet. The UFO reappeared. It just it just reappeared out there. But but what was amazing was 10 minutes later, the, the, the whole time everything was going on, there was this cluster of stars that was rotating around my area. And I thought maybe it was several jets flying together or something. Sure. That's, in the area. Yeah. And it, it got lower and lower. And finally, this thing was fixing to pass over me. So I, I got my camera ready to get another picture. I run around the truck. And when this thing started coming in, Michael, it the the sky started turning. It looked like a fog. It started developing like a fog bank. And this thing came out of that fog. 
and this thing it was the size of a Walmart with the walk with the parking lot. I mean, that's how big this thing was, man. It must have been this, huge. This thing is huge, man. And this thing passed right over the top of my head. It was a V-shaped craft. Each each half of the V had to be a half mile long. And this thing, when it come over me, man, I mean, you ain't you can't imagine what this looks like. This thing is like a hundred yards on each side of me. It seemed like, and uh, and I looked up and it's solid rock, and I could see I could see blast marks and burn marks, and I could see craters on it. And at first, I, first I thought it was a huge meteor fixing it, you know, coming in for an impact. Man, I thought, oh my God, I'm fixing to be taken out by a meteor. And this thing, and, and this thing passed over me for two or three seconds, and then all of a sudden it started slowing down and it stopped. And then the first part of it, they'd passed over me, started rising up like a skyscraper. And then I looked up there in the, in the rocky bottom of this thing, and there's these huge pipes sticking out. And I'm that like, okay, this is not a meteor. You know, meteors don't have pipes, so this and meteors don't stop in mid-flight. Very, and very this, true. And this thing started tipping up, and uh, and it started. First part it had passed me, it just started going straight up, and now it's looking like a skyscraper. And then all of a sudden, this thing, and I was sitting there, and I had my phone, and I, and I had, I had filled my memory up with stupid pictures that I had taken earlier, and I was afraid I wouldn't have enough memory. I was already getting memory warnings, and then I was afraid I was going to miss it. And uh, and then this thing, it took off so fast that it didn't make a sound, but you could hear, you could literally see the vacuum it created when it left. It was, there was, there was pockets of trap steam coming off the surface of like water over a waterfall. You could see the vortex that this thing caused when it took off so fast. Like it was like twin tornadoes were formed on each side of it where the air was just rushing in to feel the vacuum that it created because it took off so fast. And I had my camera and I was panicking. I was like, this is, nobody's ever seen anything like this. And I've got to get a picture of it. I got to get something of it, you know? And I'm looking at my, my camera. I just had a flip phone in 2011. That was about as good as it got. Sure. But, but I had been seeing enough stuff that I, I bought a, a Motorola Tundra. It was about as good as it got back then. And this thing even had video capability, which a lot of phones didn't have at that time. So I had the, about the fanciest phone that you could possibly get it at the time. And this thing, took off so, and I looked at my display screen and I couldn't see anything. This I had a U a sky full of UFO and there's nothing in the display screen. And I can tell you what that is the most frustra- frustrating thing in the world to have something that big in front of you and you can't you can't see it in your display screen. Yeah, and when you were seeing these things out there in Texas, Ronnie, did you ever think perhaps that these things might have been just perhaps like military crafts? Well, that's what MUFON was trying to convince me of. When mm-hmm. MUFON came out to this siding, and, and uh, Teresa Turner, she was the head of MUFON in Texas, and I think she may still be. I'm not so sure. But anyway, she came out there, and and, uh, and, and I had a buddy that told me, he said, man, he said, you, you need to just shut the hell up. They're going to they're gonna, they're gonna load your ass up in the back of a Hummer, and uh, nobody's going to hear from you again. You're going to go out here and meet this old guy? Uh, and I'm like, they're going to just shoot you in the head and load you up, and and then she called me, and she said, uh, "She said I'm almost there. Uh, I'm driving a black Hummer." And I, and, I, and I thought, "Oh my God, my friend was right, man. <laughs> They're gonna take me out." Black Hummer, anyway, huh? <laughs> and she says, uh, "Well, she just started trying to convince me that it was a secret U.S. military. I see. It's our, our government. It's secret military. Okay, like like she was just." determined to convince me that it's not alien and you know i hadn't really made up opinion what the hell it was i had no idea what it was but i was open-minded to the fact that i don't have a clue what it is sure and she was trying to impress on me that this is uh but i was like now come on now this thing is solid rock 
you know, if we got that kind of technology, if we got an, the kind of technology that can float solid rocks, man, you'd be seeing different kinds of stuff. You know, it would, this thing, it, this thing didn't look like human hands that ever touched it, Michael. Yeah, I mean, this didn't look like one of ours, in other words. There was nothing about this thing that looked, and this thing, I mean, when it banked away from me so fast, and I, I mean, it was a floating rock that took off like a jet. Or faster than a jet. I see. Yeah, it, it went about a mile from mm-hmm. me, and that picture that I, that you see there, this thing went a mile from me, and then all of a sudden it did this bank, and it banked, and it came back, and now, now I can see it's a mile away, but I can see the surface of this thing, man. There is a city on top of this thing. I mean, I can see look like building structures. I can see several different array of lights. I can see a tall tire that had looked like a power source on it. I can see these blue glowing fluorescent lines that stretched across the surface and through the surface structures. I mean, there was just so much to take in that I I was just amazed at all the stuff I could see. But this thing had banked and it was coming and I and and I got my phone up and I just pushed the button and uh, and I got a video of this thing. I sent you the G the GIF of it. Oh, which which and one is it? It's a GIF video there in the end. Oh, okay. Let me see that real quickly. Yeah, and so I got a I got this thing on video. Thank God, man. You know, you got something like that, and you got it on video. And uh, and and I tell you what, you know, and people don't want to believe it. It's not a great picture because it's at night of a moving object taken with a flip phone. It's only going to get so good, you know. But I oh, think, I but see it, it now. But you have to realize, I've seen this thing with my own eyes fly right over my head, so I know what it was. I know what I'm looking at. It looked just like on the camera what it looked like with my eyes. And you have to realize that this thing where that video is being taken is a mile away. It's a mile away and, and uh, flying above the trees. And, and even from a mile away, it is wider than the camera's field of view, which at a mile away is about a quarter mile, I figured. And you can look at it, and it's wider than the camera's field of view at a mile. So this thing is huge. It is very big, man. Interesting. Yeah, I'm going to put it up right now in the chat room. And I, I've been trying to, I've been analyzing and tried to just sharpen the, sharpen the image so I could see more of what's on this thing. Yeah, it's really difficult to see it. But I have it blown up in the chat room right now, but very difficult to uh, see the object. Yeah, you can see that it's 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 a V-shaped thing, and this is the left half of it. This is the very left tip of the V. Is what you can see, and the the very tip of the V is kind of turned in. It's got this weird thing that kind of turns in on it, and you can see that there's uh, the blue light on the very far right is it's it looked like a power source that was suspended up on a tire above the thing, almost like the power source may have been like removable or something, and it had these in the you can't see the blue glowing power lines. I saw it with the naked eye that stretched through the, and then buildings and stuff there on it are about two stories tall. I mean, it, they're way tall. And then that, there's a row of things burning it. And, and as I looked at the footage, there's like six, there's like six giant flares, like some kind of refining process is going on. And, uh, and I've been analyzing this and all of a sudden we seen some stuff in it that we can't explain, man. And some of the other pictures that I showed you is some of the stuff. And what really happened, what what great happened, it was the the advent of the smartphone, and that some new some new software game changer. Came out. Yes, some new software came out that was made for uh, cellular phones. And I went from seven still frames of footage that sucked to twenty six still frames of footage, and I got to see some of the stuff on this thing that I had always wanted to see. 
and uh and then i come across something on there that it's just absolutely if you're really looking at a ufo you're gonna see something that's just absolutely mind-blowing and that's exactly what i found on this thing very interesting yeah and going back to the home invasion when this happened were you at all taken aboard any sort of craft or experimented on no i i don't remember anything like it i you know i remember you know i remember the whole thing and uh, i mean they they held me in bed they searched my house and ransacked my house and then they released me and uh they never took me aboard the craft that i that i can recall and uh this had and this 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 sighting would it happened like exactly one year i mean one year to the day from when they were in my house it was like they just like one year, 365 days later is when it happened. And and it seems like the timing is almost like that. Every time they show themselves is at the same time. And But you can see on there there's an alien insectoid that's 40 feet tall that I came across on the surface of this thing. And uh, and I think the pictures are pretty damn good. And uh, and I, it's in one of the pictures that you've seen, and I put a sketch filter on it. You can see the mouth on this thing. And this thing is as tall as a telephone pole. And uh, – and it took me quite a while of looking to find this thing. And when I did, I got the best pictures I could possibly get of it. And it, I mean, this thing is tall because it's, it's a mile away. Wait a minute. You sent me a photo of this. Yep. It's right there. In the, and you'll see it's got like, there's like three pictures there. There's a drawing of it. I took a drawing of it to help people see it. Oh, okay. Now so I see it. There's a picture of it. And this thing is like 40 feet tall, man. And it's on the surface of this giant craft. And you can see this thing is towering above the two-story buildings. So this thing is huge, man. I see and it now. I seen that damn thing on there in the in the footage as I cleared it up. And I was looking. And it's exciting, man. I'm, you know, I, this is a UFO. This is a real deal UFO. And there's some real deal UFO stuff on this thing. And you can see the arms coming out of this thing's back. And and I showed it to a, a zoologist. And uh, and he goes, man, there's no. He said, I, I don't know of any creature on Earth that looks like that. And I said, well, you know, people have analyzed the video, and I've told them, I have showed them exactly where I got, I got the footage. There's nothing about it being faked. Anybody could research it. I made it accessible to anyone that wants to look at it. You can see the arms coming out of this thing's back, and and people have found it themselves just by analyzing the same video that I did. It's 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 duplicatable, and uh, and that. And Antonio, Antonio Perez said, I could I could believe this better, you know, if you could show a star field in, in the background of the craft, you know, to show how big it really is. And I found a star field behind it at one point. And uh, so, you know, there's an identical star field behind it that gives it a size aspect. Uh, so you don't just have to take my word on how big this thing is. So, you know, th- there's a lot of evidence here to right. prove that this is real. And why this thing has never made the major news in the United States and why people would rather go to UFO conferences and hear guys speak that seen UFO mentioned in a top secret paper (laughs) (laughs) rather than looking at my footage of an actual UFO and and, an actual alien creature. And, uh, you know, Nigel Nigel Watson over in the UK, you know, he's the only – uh, major ufologist who's who's looked at my stuff and said my god you know this is pretty amazing and uh, nobody else has really give it time of day that i'm just uh, it's easier to say i'm a liar i'm fabricating a story i'm doing it for attention i'm trying to sell a book you know amazing it's crap which is absolute crap you know and and some of the other pictures i that i sent to are some of the stuff of this big crap and this is a second of three crap 
the, I feel my camera memory of this thing. This thing came back at me and and it scared. It was getting so close. I was getting scared again. And then all of a sudden it turned and it made a half circle around my location. And then it went from a huge craft flying above the trees to just a dot moving across the sky in about a second and a half. Understood. And, and I tell you what, man, I was jumping up and down cheering like a, a high school girl that just got <laughs> asked to the prom, man. Cause <laughs> I funny. knew I wasn't going to get taken. And I, I saw the most amazing sight that anybody could ever see was, I mean, this is like watching the Star Trek Enterprise fly over your head. I mean, this is, you, you can't imagine what it's like to see something like that. If this thing would have crashed for some reason and landed on the ground, you would literally need a golf cart to drive around it. You would wear out walking around this thing. That's pretty incredible experience there. And of you, course, what I was trying to allude to earlier in terms of experiments is lots of people that have been abducted or perhaps uh, entered someone's home, at least uh, experiments have been conducted on these individuals and lots of them involve an anal probing, which is always a terrible thing. So I was just uh, perhaps wondering if that might have happened to you, that whole ordeal, that terrible ordeal. Now, you know, and, and after seeing this, I, I I never dreamed it could get more amazing than this to see that to see this. I mean, after I left here, you know, I left this location, you know, thinking that they had left and I got just a little ways up the road. And there was a there was a, a double wide trailer home up there off the highway away where I couldn't get my truck to it. And there was something hovering over the house. And I realized that that's not a star. There's something. And I thought, oh, my God, there's something over these people's house. And and I, I thought, I've got to warn these guys. I can't take my truck to their house because the driveway's too narrow. So I started blowing my horn, shining my spotlight at their house, shining my spotlight at the craft. And then all of a sudden, the craft slowly started moving away from their house. And, and there was blue, there was blue triangular, there was a triangle opening in the bottom of this thing that was so big that you could put a Cessna airplane in it. There was ductwork all inside the walls and it was well lit inside the craft and you could see. And it almost looked like the cochlea of the inner ear where all this ductwork on the sides of the craft had, had went around these turbo tubes into a tight circle. And, uh, and there was these blue lights that were all the way around the triangle opening. And the craft was so dark, I could not see what the craft looked like. I should even shine my spotlight on the craft, and I couldn't. It just absorbed it. It was solid black. You couldn't see anything, what the craft looked like. But the opening itself was huge in the bottom of it, and it was triangular, and it was right over these people's home. I went over there a few days later when I could get back over there to make sure they were all right because it scared the hell out of me for that family that was in there. Uh, wondering what happened to them, what was going on, and I wanted, I needed to make sure they were okay. So I went and talked to the lady, showed her some of the pictures that I'd caught, and uh, it seemed like they moved. <laughs> and they said their grandmother always said she seen lights around there. And, Understood. Uh, yes, it's very interesting, especially given the fact that certain locations have military bases around them, and that's one of the reasons I'm kind of skeptical as well as. Some of the things that I've seen out here in the sky, I don't live too far away from a naval facility where the famous Blue Angels train. So you definitely have all sorts of things going on out here. Oh, uh, yeah, but, you know, I've been, I've been working some things. out there for 30 years. You know? Yeah, but there, I, I there's know some things for, for sure. Yeah. But there are some things out there that can definitely make you question if it truly is one of ours. Uh, my parents, for a, an example, I always use them because they saw something out here that uh, freaked them out pretty good, and they don't think that uh, came from one of ours. They believe it came from somewhere else, especially the way it looked. It had yeah. this weird, um, transparent 
sort of feature to it. You know, something we see out here, we, we see these groups of helicopters that, that fly out there, and they and I've seen them all turn their lights on uh, underneath them at once for some reason, and that looks really odd looking. But the fact is, you can hear you can hear a, helicopters are very noisy, man. You can hear that you sure. can hear that it's a helicopter from miles away. I mean, you know, it, it sounds just like a helicopter. It looks like helicopters, and they got the, they turn their lights on. Yeah, it's odd looking, but it's easy to determine that it's helicopters, you know. And the jets I've seen fly around out here, you can tell. You can hear the jet. You can see the jet. You know, it's a jet. You know, it's. Yeah, there's really nothing. I've seen even the jets, you, you'll you see a jet go by and it'll drop some flares out of the rear end of it. You know, you hear the jet, you see the jet, you see the flares. These things that we're seeing around here, there's huge areas of low low illumination, not like a flare. You know, these things, it, it's, a, it's like an area the size of a car or larger that lights up and it's not brilliantly bright. It's very dull, but it's such a large area that it's illuminated. And so, yeah, it's, you know, I don't think that it's anything that has to do with the military. And this thing looked like it had never been touched by human hands, you know. Understood, understood. And going back to what we were talking about in private in terms of some individuals who have these very graphic experiences with extraterrestrials, we've had a number of people reporting these things. And one of them is a politician by the name of Simon Parks, who had some sort of uh, affair with with an alien that he dubbed the Cat Queen, and it looks very familiar to what the drawing you sent me, uh, Ronnie. Yeah, you know, I, I'm kind of I'm familiar with that story, and yes, sir. And it's you know, and at first I always laughed at that, thinking this is the biggest bunch of crap I've ever heard. <laughs> but but I tell you what, yeah. In August of 2017, I, I was uh, I was at home and I'd worked the night before and I came home. And, uh, and I was sleeping, it was, you know, I was sleeping in bed and it was probably, it was nine o'clock in the morning because when I get off work, sometimes it's four or five in the morning. So I sleep to almost noon. I'm sleeping and I'm not even dreaming, Michael. I mean, I'm just, I'm just sleeping like a baby. And all of a sudden I have like a mini dream where it's like, there's like these two females got a hold of my arms and I'm, and then I slip out of their grasp and then I fall right back to sleeping. And I thought, what? That was the weirdest damn dream. You know, I'm still, I'm still asleep, but not quite as asleep. And I thought, that's the weirdest damn dream. And then all of a sudden, these old gals are pulling on my arms again and they're going, help us, help us, you know? And I, I thought I was stuck in a manhole or stuck in something and, and yeah. I wrestled loose. And, uh, and when I got loose, I, there's these two females there and I'm standing there. I'm thinking I'm in my, my underwear, but you know, I didn't realize <laughs> that I'm buck naked. Oh my. And, and I'm standing, I'm standing there and there's like, I'm like, shit, I'm naked and I'm in front of two females <laughs> and it's maybe it's my wife's friends. Who knows what and who are they? What are they doing? Oh, that, that's a, that's a great scenario. And then they start telling me that they're from they're from another world and they've been watching us and they needed it. They started to disturb my rest, but they needed to have a conversation. And I thought, is this real? <laughs> I thought these gals are trying to pull one over on me, and I'm surprised my wife would let this go on. Some and some cosplay going on there. And I'm looking at one. Yeah, they're definitely dressed dressed to the part, you know. And I looked at one, and and uh, and I realized that she's got a cat's nose and mouth, and you can see the whiskers on her lips that are like trimmed, and it almost it reminded me of porcupine quills that had been trimmed. 
And I thought, my God, if this, if she, this is a costume, it's a damn good one. Yeah. It kind of, I thought, oh shit, you know, <laughs> I think these people, these are real. These gals are real. And then I looked down and I realized I'm standing in my bed. I'm not standing next to my bed. I'm standing in my, my legs are buried up. I looked at them and, and it's like my knee. All I can see is my knees on the bed. And I'm thinking, oh shit, my, my legs are gone. <laughs> My legs are missing. Uh, by the way, uh, one of the listeners in the chat room, they're saying that the mustache is a turnoff. It's, it's not really. <laughs> Actually, she was much prettier than I could draw, and that's the reason she looks like she does. <laughs> and that's not really a mustache. That is the that is the uh, the whiskers. The whiskers, yeah, and right, they're right. trim. They're not long like they're. You could tell that she had grown them short. She'd cut them short. They reminded me they're very big, like porcupine quills that come out of her lip. You know. Yeah, so it's and, it's crazy that you said that and you send me this photo because again, a lot of individuals out there, not just people you never heard of, uh, even some pretty known, uh, va legit individuals like Simon Parks, who had that sort of affair with the wife with something that resembles what you've drawn here you know i heard that story and i seen he said he paints the pictures right he paints the pictures and sells them and it's got the the white alien or is that somebody different that might that be might someone slightly different but it's your your drawing is pretty close to what he has uh described as well oh uh, yeah and like i said you know she was wearing and, and get this she was wearing jeans and she was wearing a white blouse and i really couldn't see the stripes until and the other one didn't wasn't it, didn't look like her at all. The other one was tall and athletic looking, and she was wearing like yoga pants and a, like an athletic shirt. And uh, and they told me they're from another world, and that they had need to have a conversation. And then my body sleeping peacefully in bed, and I looked in bed, and there was my body sleeping. Then I seen my legs. I wanted to go look down on my own face, and when I when I tried to take a step. Was it was like you can move through solid matter, but it's like it it puts up some resistance. It's like wading through water that's knee deep. I had a hard time walking, and I kind of fell forward. And I looked down, and I didn't. My legs were like embedded into the bed. I put my hand out to catch myself, and both of the ETs grabbed my shoulders to help stand me back up, like a drunk trying to walk. And I put my hand on my own freaking leg, and I could feel my hand resting on my shin. And then all of a sudden. The more force I put on my hand, my hand went right through the, my bone. It felt like I broke my own leg, and then I could feel the softness of the mattress underneath it. And, man, it's really odd. So I, that freaked me out. So I jumped up, and they, they helped me get me out. Of the, I walk out of the, this, this bed, and there's my leg. So I'm feeling better now, and I'm realizing, man, this is – and they told me that this is a – it's like a rift between uh, our dimension and their dimension. It's like right. a place they view us from. And you can move through solid matter, and she wanted to show me, so she wanted me to have my put my hand on this old gal's face and push, and I pushed, and my hand went into her head. I could feel her hair. I could feel her skin, and as I pushed, my hand went further in it. I could feel her brain matter in there. It felt wet. It felt nasty, and I pulled my hand out. Like, man, that was, like, grossest thing I've ever felt, and uh and I was, and I, and I made the remarks, you know, so, okay, yeah, you know, solid matter. So this is a place where the people of our world are going to meet the people of your world. And it's a place safe from biological contamination. It's a pay, it's a safe place from physical harm. And I said, yeah, a gun wouldn't work here. And they, they kind of looked at each other and smiled. And she said, one of them said, the, the one that did most of the talking said, cause the one with the cast mouth, she could speak, but. And they didn't talk with their minds. She spoke with her mouth, but uh, she had a hard time making words. It was like her mouth wasn't built to speak. And she struggled at times to make certain words. 
And you could see that she was smart enough to like she would use a different word once she had a problem with the word. It's the same same way as a person with a speech impediment might do. Amazing. But the other one that did most of the talking and uh, the other one, I realized that later, you know, one of the pictures I sent you is a picture of her in, in two. Th and when I was in 2010, the Coma, Texas UFO, uh, 2011, when when I took a picture of the compartment under the craft, she is in it. You could see her. In that compartment, and it's in one of the pictures I sent you. That's got the other drawing of the other alien. And I realized I actually have a picture. You know, to see an, to an alien and then to have a picture of that alien. You know, that's a pretty big deal, man. And I realized, and she got this big red thing on her face that I thought was a birthmark. I see it now. But actually, it's a ruby. It's like a ruby that she's like got glued to her face, and then she had another one right in the middle of her forehead, and then there was a tattoo on the other cheek. And you can see in that picture, that's the same one. That's the same alien. She had these huge blue eyes. I got within a foot of her face, and it kind of freaked her out. She didn't feel comfortable with me getting that close to her. And I got, I said, she goes, why are you so close? And I said, I just want to get a good look at your eyes. I said, they're amazing. They were big. They were blue. They were beautiful. And there was like ours, our eyes have white around some, the irises. Those some big very blue little, eyes. Very little white. Yeah, man. Those are some very big blue eyes. And it seems like she has some sort of facial tattoo. Yeah, there was a tattoo on her cheek of some weird flower. And uh, and then she made a point to tell me that they were wearing clothes so that I would feel more comfortable. And they were, and they speak. They said the people, their world are already affected by observing us, and, and clothing has became popular because they. She said they had ritualistic clothing, but most of the time they didn't have clothing that they wore. And she, she actually said, uh, said well, we we make clothing after your designs, and and she. And she said they become very popular in our world from seeing them on your world, and we made them from the uh, the products of our world. And she said yoga pants, and she rubbed her hand on her pants and said so soft. <laughs> I was like, that's amazing. I just like our. That's the one thing we can contribute to the the galactic community is our clothing. We gave them yoga so, pants. And the other one was she said she's wearing designer jeans and blouse. She said these are the most popular items that we've seen in your world that the women like. She said the men are frustrated that the women are wearing these because previously when they wanted to have sex, now they have to they have to wait for the women to undress. So the men are frustrated, she said. <laughs> that's hilarious. Now, that's actually a good question in my mind that I was going to ask you was in terms of aliens, if they have uh, different sexes. Sometimes when you talk about the alien greys, it seems like they don't have uh, any sort of uh, genitals. The the tall one that we're looking at here on the video, is, you know, she said, uh, and when I got close to her, she said, you know, she said, she said, you know, tell the people of your world when the people of our our world are, are interested in meeting the people of your world. And this is a place we're going to meet. And she said, we're from a parallel dimension. And I said, I said, I would love to see it. Is there any way you can show me? I said, I, I would I said, I'd love to see it. If you'd be able to just briefly let me have a look at it, you know, and she goes, yeah, you know, we can do that. And uh, she said, but, you know, tell the people of your world that uh, when it comes time to meet us, she said, no we, no physical. It's like the first rule of contact, I think. It's like they said no physical contact without consent. They don't want us just running up and grabbing them. You know, some of them, some of them love contact. Other ones, they don't want you touching them or getting close to them. And rightfully so. I don't, I'm not sure they would want that. And she seemed like she didn't want any contact. Now, the other one was I was sitting there talking to her and she was holding my hand the whole time. And uh, she, wanted, I wanted to, she wanted contact with you. 
Yeah, she wanted she wanted contact, and I wanted to look at her hands because I'd always heard that if you're dreaming, <clears throat> look at somebody's hands or something like that, and then and it'll look odd or something like that, or it'll be different. And I I hope you know I hope I'm not dreaming. I hope this is real, but and it sure cer- certainly seems real. And so I I took my hand out of hers and I and I looked at her hand, and she had these pads like in between the digits of her fingers, like uh like a cat might have on it on it feet like these leathery pads on her hand like she could like be comfortable running across the ground and she had them on her feet too and i thought wow that's very odd and she seemed like it hurt her feelings that i that i didn't want to hold hands with oh. her. like i was refusing contact <laughs> i you know? see yes so after i looked got a good, a good look at her hand i started holding her hand again and, and it seemed like it made her happy because i didn't want her to feel like that you know i realize that you know when you're I'm not just representing me. I'm representing every man, woman, and child on the whole planet Earth. And, you know, and I understand there's a, you know, I don't want to do something that's going to, we want to be friends with these guys. We want to, we don't want to be enemies with these guys. For one, they got way more technology than we do. So the idea is to give them everything they want, be nice as you possibly can, and represent every man, woman, and child on the planet. You know, that's plan A. And uh, so I definitely, you know, I want to get along with these people. I don't want to offend them. And so, you know, I, and, and this place that we were visiting, it was very strange. It's, it's almost like I want to say is like a, it's, your, it's your spiritual form or maybe your living essence or whatever you want to call it. It's like it's like they pulled me out of my body like I was. And I thought, you know, nobody's ever experienced this unless you die, I guess. But there is a you can pull your your life force or whatever it is right out of my body. And my body was sitting there sleeping peacefully, but I was standing right there having a conversation. And, uh, and the thing was, you know, I said, you know, can you show me where you come from? They always told me that, if, you know, if you get a chance to meet ET, find out how they get here, right. you know, find out how, how do they get a thousand light years to here? Good question. Well, they, didn't, they didn't come a thousand light years. In fact, where they came from and was very close to here. It's just, it's like in a different part of space that's like folded and close to us, but it's like it might be a thousand light years away, but it's like, you know, it's like a wadded up piece of paper and they're somewhere where we can't see. You can't see their, where they're from with the telescope, uh, but it's very close to here. And uh, anyway, I asked her, I said, can I see? She goes, yeah, I just, she said, you just have to walk through this wall. Remember, you can move through solid matter here. Just walk through this wall. And I, and I was I was sitting there. I was fixing a you know I didn't know if I was going to walk into a tunnel. What the hell is going to be on the other side of this wall? You know. So I start and right there where I'm going through the wall at there's a picture on the wall and there's a glass over the picture. And I'm thinking you know this is going to cut my face. You know I'm still. <laughs> I'm not so sure that I can't move this all the matter. I'm afraid this glass is going to cut my face. So I'm going really slow, and it seemed like it's aggravating on that I'm going slow. You're fine. You'll be fine. Go. Just go. And, uh, and we, I think we had a misunderstanding here. Like, I thought she meant walk through the wall. I think she meant for me to lean through the wall and look on the other side of the wall. Because what happened when I – as I started going through that wall, I felt the glass move through my face. I felt the sheetrock move through my stomach. I could feel it passing through my intestines. My stomach knows what it's like to have my intestines in it, but my stomach doesn't know what it's like to have sheetrock moving through it. And I could feel it. And it didn't hurt, but it's a very uncomfortable, odd feeling that you wouldn't just want to stand there and feel that. So I was – I could feel this solid matter moving through my body, and I walk right through this damn wall. And the next thing I know, I, it's almost like I tripped and fell in a freaking outer space. 
I kind of fall forward and I'm floating in zero gravity right off this odd planet. There's a planet down here and it's got a big desert area. There's a there's a green area next to a thin ocean. There's like three major continents on it. Not a lot of lakes. There's a misty, I didn't see any clouds, but it looked like a hazy mist that was floating around the place. And I was taking all this stuff in. And this old rocky, ugly moon went floating by. And then I seen a... a I thought it might have been – I was looking for their sun, and then I realized that the, what I thought might have been their sun was – but I think it's a second moon that was catching the light of a sun that I wasn't able to see. And I realized that what I'm looking at is a dark side of their planet, and up in their, up in their, up in their sky, I could, it was very close to a galactic center because I could see the planets circulating a, a black hole fixing it, be sucked into it. And it was producing so much light because there were so many planets there that the nighttime of this place could never get dark like it gets here because there just is so much illumination just coming from that galactic center that's visible in their sky. And there's just a whole lot more planets than there is in our skies. And and this whole time I'm doing it, I'm doing this slow forward flip, right? And it's after about two or three rounds of this, I'm kind of getting, I'm kind of feeling like I'm getting motion sick. And I'm taking everything in. I'm looking at the, these thin blue oceans, man. You can see the white beaches uh, down towards the on the on the snow caps on the north and south pole. There wasn't. It didn't look like snow. It looked like it frost. It looked more like they had frosty north and south poles, uh, not snow like we have. Large desert area. And at one point, I, you know, I and I think that desert area was where they had been at war with somebody, and they had nuked part of their planet. Is what what the desert area actually was. And, uh, but it had thin, very thin oceans, man. And, uh, yeah, so I'm taking all this in. Well, when I, when I, when I started doing this head flip and I was, I said, well, now it's my chance to look backward and see what I came from, where I, where I came from. And I look backward and there's a black spot. There's a black box floating in space with no lights on it. Nothing. It's just a black, perfectly square black. I don't know what you would call it. Like, a. I don't know, obelisk or something. I don't know. It's just sitting there. And it's like I walked right out of it. I walked right out of it. And I noticed I was in outer space, but I did not feel cold. I didn't have to breathe. And I realized, you know, maybe the, the place I was at, you know, you don't feel hot or cold and you don't have to breathe. And I felt very comfortable. Nothing hurt, nothing ate, nothing. You know, I, and I felt really good. I mean, it felt good to be there. It was like a lot of the problems I have in real life wasn't there, but I could still feel things. I could have thought. I could communicate. You know, it's a it's a pretty damn cool place. And but I'm kind of freaked out and started to get sick. And then I'm I'm doing another flip and I'm looking around. I'm taking everything in because I want to make sure. And I drew some pictures of it so that you know I everybody else could see it. I wasn't able to have a camera with me to catch a picture of it. And I was starting to get sick. And thank God she grabbed me by the shoulder and she drug me back into the room. And I was ready. <laughs> I was ready to come back, I tell you. And she drug me back into the room. But they had mentioned several times and they were insisting on a genetic sample. And and I was like, okay, yeah, 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 I don't mind. I'll give you a genetic sample. You know, just what? And I was willing to take one for the team. I'm telling you. <laughs> you were willing. I'm willing. I mean, these are alien visitors here and we want to I'm representing every man, woman, child on the planet. You know, I'll take one for the team if I have to, if we can be friends with these guys. That's noble of you. Technology. You know, I think anybody should do it, you know, if you get sure. put in that situation, you know. And I'm like, I'll do whatever it takes to give you an example. And and she she looked at me and she said, she said, my friend is a geneticist. And she said, if you wouldn't mind, you could just have sex with her. And I'm going, did I just hear this shit? Yeah, she, yeah she, I guess so. I'm like. 
I looked, she kind of tilted my head. She said, look, you don't have to. We just really appreciate it if you did, you know. It, it would really, you know, it would really help us a lot. Well, where do I like, sign up? <laughs> well, it really wasn't like a romantic, because my wife had kept walking through, my wife had walked from the, through the bedroom at one point, and I seen her perfect clearest day, and, and, I, and I said, I wonder why she didn't see us standing here. And and one of them had told me, she said, you know, we, this is where we observe you from. She said, she can't hear or see us. You know, this is where we watch you guys from. And I, and, uh, and I mean, my wife walked right by there and she walked back and she paused and she looked at my body sleeping in the bed. And it kind of freaked one of the aliens out because she said she stopped and she looked over towards us. And she said, can't she see us? And the other one said, no, no. And she pointed at my body sleeping in the bed. She said she's looking at him. Oh. And then she she paused for a second. And she walked out. And later I asked my wife, I said, you know, why do you do that? And she said, well, you know, she said, I, I kind of has some sleep apnea. And she said, it seems like I stop breathing sometimes. And she just wants to make sure that I'm taking breaths. And I thought, oh, OK. Well, you know, I never knew that until I asked her, you know, and uh, my wife actually did that, you know. So anyway, then she went ahead and walked out. Of her. And she's like, well, you know, she just like it. If you don't mind, just she's so an your, your she wife, just wants to have sex. Your wife was cool with it then. Well, at first, I didn't want to tell her, you know, I'm like, man, I don't want to I don't want to feel like I'm cheating on her or anything like that, you know. But and at one point during the encounter, you know, my wife, right when we, she had she took her blue jeans off and I could see the stripes that I drew in the picture. And like I said, you couldn't see them on her clothes. She took it. She stripped down and I could see that she had stripes on her and she had this velvety like she had this like light fur, like Velcro. Uh, like fur, thin fur on her, and these beautiful stripes that went all the way down her. And I thought, wow, you know, and I, then I seen on her feet down there that she had pads like she had on her hands. And then when she pulled the blue jeans down that she was wearing, she unwrapped her tail. She unwrapped the tail from around her waist. And this thing is, you know, flipping back and forth, and she jumps up on the bed. And you have to realize that this bed thing is odd. Now, you can wade through the bed. You can sit on the bed. It's it's like you have mass, but you don't have so much mass that you can't – you can wade, walk through a bed, or you can sit on a bed. You can even feel the softness of the bed. And it's like – and when they put an implants in us, they just – they take the implant, and they just push it into us and leave it. And then whenever they exit, it becomes it, – it just, it just becomes part of you. You know, they don't even have to cut you. Amazing. They don't have to surgically cut you. They just place it in you. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I was curious because I do know that it caused – well, going back to Simon Parks, it, it did cause a bit of a issue in his personal life with, with the wife after he did the deed with this cat queen that he described himself – and uh, I, I thought I might even ask you that because of that whole ordeal. I'm sure anyone's wife would not be too happy about their husband having sex with an alien. Well, I know, you know, and and I, I was kind of timid to tell her, you know, but I thought, you know, I just really need to come clean about it. And and uh, anyway, you know, my wife, right, she she had got on the bed and she was wanting and I, I stuck my hand down there to make sure she had all the parts in the right places. <laughs> His tail's flipping around. And she said, it just, it does that when it, when I get excited and and this tail's flipping back and forth and I'm just freaked the hell out that I'm fixing to have to have The other one steps out. She said, I'll step out and give you some privacy. And I'm thinking, okay, that's a little bit better, but still. Um, and then all of a sudden, here comes my wife walking through the room uh -oh. again. And I'm going, oh, shit, it's almost like I felt like I got caught in the act. Like, oh, <laughs> shit, busted. And my wife walks back through, and, and I'm kind of freaking out, and I stop anything, you know. And she goes, look, she can't hear us, and, and, and she yells at her from on top of the bed, 
lady, is it okay if I have sex with your husband? And I mean, yells loud. I could hear it, you know? And, and my wife just kept walking, you know? That's she amazing. Goes, she said, it's not like you're cheating on her. She said, it's, she it's said your physical sock. body yeah. is right there in bed. And she pointed at my physical body. And I thought, well, really, you know, was that really cheating? Because, it's for science. Yeah. My body's laying there in bed. So, and, and the, whatever's fixing to have sex with her is not my physical body. So, you know, that, that kind of shades it, I guess. I don't know. I was like, okay, let's just get this over with, you know? And I really just wanted to get it over with it. You know, it's not like this romantic interlude. This is like... Uh, this is this is like a weird sexual encounter under the worst possible circumstances. <laughs> you know, it's it's not this big romantic interlude that everybody likes to picture. I don't think uh, it's that awful. <laughs> but and she kept she kept turning around and talked to me, and she could turn really turn her shoulders oddly, and it didn't. It looked definitely not human. I mean, right, right. She had a whole lot of movement that she could almost turn around and look at you, you know. Ooh. And it just it was kind of creepy, and I wanted to ask her to stop doing that because it was just <laughs> a little creepy. too wild. Anyway, this this tail, well, it it kind of wrapped around the back of my neck, you know. And I thought, well, this is you know, actually pretty cool now, you know, and then all of a sudden it started flicking in my damn face and I thought, okay, this is not cool. So I had to like unwind the tail from around my neck and I kind of pinned it on her hip and I just really wanted to get it over with at this point. Sure. And, and so I just did it as fast as I could and we, and I climaxed it everything pretty quickly. And I was like, Oh, thank God that's over with. And then, and she just jumped up. And she reached down and she grabbed this like it's like a weird beaker looking thing and she stuck it underneath it and she shot my ejaculate into it and all these lights went up and down and stuff and then she was like you know saying that you know it's, it's a shame that there's not one living sperm cell in here. Well, I had a vasectomy here a while back. I don't know if that oh. had anything to do with it or if you can't have living cells. But she was then she went into this long thing about I was going look there's a whole lot better genetic samples here than me man I'm like fifty something years <laughs> old and. And, you know, high school education and, you know, my, you know, I don't have anything to offer. You weren't really trying to sell yourself then. (laughs) No, I really wasn't trying to sell myself. (laughs) She goes, no, no. She she said, she said, you don't understand. She said, we need genetic samples from everyone. And she said, when we come times to meet us, we're going to ask anyone who wants to to donate genetic samples to us. We'd greatly appreciate it if they did. And I don't know. They talked between themselves, and I was kind of trying to figure out what they were saying. And it almost sounds like they're working on some kind of interdimensional travel, like uh, interdimensional tourism or something like that. It's like they, they can take clones of a mass quantity of us and then put our spirits in it and somewhere else. And maybe we could go to their world. Right. Maybe they could, you know, come here. I don't know, but there's, it's sound like some of the stuff they're working on. And she was talking about the genetic modifications they make. And, uh, she said, you should be very, you know, proud. So you're, you know, your, your offspring, uh, will be used to seed new worlds, you know, like this That's is wild. I really, sh- I really should be proud of. And I was like, yeah, I so said, you, well, have, you, know, you have an alien love child. I mean, offspring, but I told her, I said, you know, offspring, I'll never have the chance to meet, you know? I said, yeah, but offspring, I'll never have the opportunity to meet, you know? So Just like a Simon Parks, by the way, he had the exact same experience having a love child of his own with an alien, uh, not a out-of-this-world experience, uh, pun intended, and he told the Channel 4 documentary, my wife found out about it and was very unhappy, clearly, that caused a few problems, but... It is not on a human level, so I don't see it as wrong. You know, and there's a lot of those stories out there, and I've heard not just Simon Parks, but there's other people. You know, yeah, there's, there's a one, woman. I, there's one by the name of a uh, Pamela Stonebrook. 
a jazz singer who had sex with a reptilian. Yeah. Wild. Go ahead. Sorry. And there was one guy who had sex with a bug-looking like creature. It, well, I mean, it wasn't even. It was like they told him that he had to lay on it and have sex with it. That's wild. You know. And they forced him to, like, like he didn't want to, but he had, you know, he had no choice. And it was like a bug, you know. They got, like, they got me too'd by a bug. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So there's a lot of those stories out there. And I, I always thought it was funny until I went through this. And I'm like, you know, that, I, I'll believe anything they say now after going through this. But she said she, she went on this long thing about how they would genetically like gourmet, uh, gourmet for the planet they were using it on and stuff like that. And, and she she also said something about our genetic model. She said, you know, tell the people of your world that the, the double helix. You just said you're very close to solving your own, being able to cure your own diseases. She said we use a triple helix model. I said you guys use a double helix model, and it's on the right path, but you're not quite there or something like that. And you should tell somebody that you should start looking at the triple helix. I, I've got a high school education. I didn't even know what the hell she's talking about, but I had to get on Google and look up double helix. What the hell is a double helix? <laughs> And when I got on Google and looked up double helix, I seen that it's like the, the genetic DNA model, you know. And I was Amazing. like, well, okay, she was way over my head there. You know, I didn't have a clue what the hell a double helix was. Understood, understood. I don't blame you for going through any of these things. It's such a... Uh, amazing experience you had. And of course, we are running out of time here. Unfortunately, my friend, I'm sorry about that. Uh, we've, I've been on here for almost um four hours now. Yeah, you've been on, you had quite a day. I really did. I really did. But before I do wrap up, I did want to ask you about the whole media craze in terms of ufology. It seems like many mainstream media outlets right now are still talking about UFOs. Yeah, and that's a good thing, too, because, you know, I know for a factor out there, and I and I, like I said, I, I know on a level that most people couldn't even dream of, and, and you know, you know, when I was a kid, I always wanted—I always wanted to grow up like. And I think technology is being hid from us. And if we can make buddies with these guys, and uh, I mean, we can live in floating houses. We can have crops that travel to the rain. I mean, we there's so many things we could do. I wanted to live like a jet right, with right. a floating house and a flying car, you know. And and it may be that it may be that the, the technology to do that has been available, and they're hiding it because they they're greedy, and that's a damn shame. And, and I think these guys, ever who they are. I hope they get with the program, and I I hope that I'm still alive whenever they we do make first. And these guys, they're talking like that. They seem like they really weren't all about our government. I mean, they would rather contact an old truck driver than go meet uh, Donald Trump. You know, uh, they didn't seem like they were too impressed with our military or our government or anybody like that. And uh, and they 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 said that, you know when they they first found us they said our nuclear testing sent light and radiation off into their parallel universe and they were afraid that they were going to be attacked again because they had been uh, attacked through a dimensional portal that some guys had opened up and fired on their planet and that was where the desert area on their planet came from and uh, they defeated these guys and she said they were very similar to our historical fallen angels and she told me that and I was like you know wow. That's some very strange stuff there. And and she said, we first investigated your planet thinking that you were the enemy. You know, she said, we're finding out now that you're not the enemy. We think the enemy has been here and used your planet. And it, it almost makes me wonder if maybe the pyramids aren't some kind of a damn weapon system that they used to fire on these guys. You know, it's very, very interesting. Yes, it is very possible. 
No doubt. Ronnie, thank you so much for being here and talking again to all of us and sharing your incredible story with us all. Um, definitely plug anything you'd like and say goodnight to everybody here. Uh, thank you, Michael. It's certainly been a pleasure. And uh, like I said, uh, I have a book, Ronnie Dawson UFO Story, Barnes & Noble on Amazon. And I have, you can go to the Ronnie Dawson YouTube channel and you can see uh, my videos and stuff like that. You can, uh, you can just, you can Google Ronnie Dawson UFO and you can, I post all my pictures and videos and stuff like that right there on Google where you don't have to go to some weird site. You can see them right there on Google Images. And you can check. I want everybody to take a look at them, and I guarantee you they're the real deal. Nothing is fake here. Love that, and I uh, loved having Hugh here on the program. Did you have fun, Ronnie? Yeah, I had a blast, man. It is. It's always fun being on your show, Michael. You're My such a goodness. great, great guy to be talking to. Oh, thank you very much. I feel the same way about you, Ronnie. Love having you here, and of course, I'm going to have to bring you back on here for you to do some co-hosting with me. <laughs> thank you, Michael. I'm, I'm a pretty busy guy lately. Now we got to squeeze you in here, Ronnie. <laughs> thank you michael all right my friend take care and i'll see you on the other side my friend all right thanks all right, mahalo good night good night and i want to thank all of you out there to those that will listen on a replay i want to thank those on the fringe fm and of course if you like the program and are a true fan a hardcore listener can go to the patreon and donate five dollars and you are in i have already posted the first episode and it is raw and uncensored that's patreon.com 